Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? One. He painted trees as by some special divining instinct of their essential qualities. He understood them. He knew why in an oak forest, for instance, no individual was utterly distinct from its fellows, and why no two beeches in the world were alike. People asked him down to paint a favourite lime or silver birch, for he caught the individuality of a tree as some catch the individuality of a horse. How he managed it was something of a puzzle, for he had never had painting lessons. His drawing was often wildly inaccurate, and while his perception of a tree personality was true and vivid, his rendering of it might almost approach the ludicrous. Yet the character and personality of that particular tree stood there alive beneath his brush, shining, frowning, dreaming, as the case might be friendly or hostile, good or evil, it emerged. There was nothing else in the wide world that he could paint. Flowers and landscapes he only muddled away into a smudge. With people he was helpless and hopeless, also with animals. Skies he could sometimes manage, or effects of wind in foliage. But as a rule he left these all severely alone. He kept the trees wisely following an instinct that was guided by love. It was quite arresting, this way he had of making a tree look almost like a being, alive. It approached the uncanny. Yes, Sanderson knows what he's doing when he paints a tree, thought old David Bittacy C.B. late of the woods and forests. Why, you can almost hear it rustle. You can smell the thing. You can hear the rain drip through its leaves. You can almost see the branches move. It grows. For in this way, somewhat, he expressed his satisfaction, half to persuade himself that the twenty guineas were well spent since his wife thought otherwise, and half to explain this uncanny reality of life that lay in the fine old cedar framed above his study table. Yet in the general view, the mind of Mr. Bittacy was held to be austere, not to say morose, Few divined in him the secretly tenacious love of nature that had been fostered by years spent in the forests and jungles of the eastern world. It was odd for an Englishman, due possibly to that Eurasian ancestor. Surreptitiously, as though half ashamed of it, he had kept alive a sense of beauty that hardly belonged to his type and was unusual for its vitality. Trees in particular nourished it. He also understood trees felt a subtle sense of communion with them, born perhaps of those years he had lived in caring for them, guarding, protecting, nursing, years of solitude among their great shadowy presences. He kept it largely to himself, of course, because he knew the world he lived in. He also kept it from his wife, to some extent. He knew it came between them, knew that she feared it, was opposed. But what he did not know, or realise at any rate, was the extent to which she grasped the power which they wielded over his life. Her fear, he judged, was simply due to those years in India, when for weeks at a time his calling took him away from her into the jungle forests, while she remained at home, dreading all manner of evils that might befall him. 
This, of course, explained her instinctive opposition to the passion for woods that still influenced and clung to him. It was a natural survival of those anxious days of waiting in solitude for his safe return. For Mrs. Bittersey, daughter of an evangelical clergyman, was a self-sacrificing woman who, in most things, found a happy duty in sharing her husband's joys and sorrows to the point of self-obliteration. Only in this matter of the trees she was less successful than in the others. It remained a problem difficult of compromise. He knew, for instance, that what she objected to in this portrait of the cedar on their lawn was really not the price he had given for it, but the unpleasant way in which the transaction emphasised this breach between their common interests, the only one they had, but deep. Sanderson, the artist, earned little enough money by his strange talent. Such checks were few and far between. The owners of fine or interesting trees who cared to have them painted singly were rare indeed, and the studies that he made for his own delight he also kept for his own delight. Even were there buyers, he wouldn't sell them. Only a few, and these peculiarly intimate friends, might even see them, for he disliked to hear the undiscerning criticisms of those who did not understand. Not that he minded laughter at his craftsmanship, he admitted it with scorn, but the remarks about the personality of the tree itself could easily wound or anger him. He resented slighting observations concerning them as though insult offered to personal friends who could not answer for themselves. He was instantly up in arms. It really is extraordinary, said a woman who understood, that you can make that cypress seem an individual, when in reality all cypresses are so exactly alike. And though the bit of calculated flattery had come so near to seeing the right true thing, Sanderson flushed as though she had slighted a friend beneath his very nose. Abruptly he passed in front of her and turned the picture to the wall. Almost as queer, he answered rudely, copying her silly emphasis, as that you should have imagined individuality in your husband, madame, when in reality all men are so exactly alike. Since the only thing that differentiated her husband from the mob was the money for which she had married him, Sanderson's relations with that particular family terminated on the spot, chance of perspective orders with it. His sensitiveness, perhaps, was morbid. At any rate, the way to reach his heart lay through his trees. He might be said to love trees. He certainly drew a splendid inspiration from them, and the source of a man's inspiration, be it music, religion, or a woman, is never a safe thing to criticise. I do think perhaps it was just a little extravagant, dear, said Mrs. Bittersey, referring to the cedar check, when we want a lawnmower so badly too, but as it gives you such pleasure. It reminds me of a certain day, Sophia, replied the old gentleman, looking first proudly at herself, then fondly at the picture, now long gone by. It reminds me of another tree, that Kentish lawn in the spring, birds singing in the lilacs and someone in a muslin frog waiting patiently beneath a curtain cedar. Not the one in the picture, I know, but I was not waiting, she said indignantly. I was picking fir cones for the schoolroom fire. Fir cones, my dear, do not grow on cedars, and schoolroom fires were not made in June in my young days. And anyhow, it isn't the same cedar. It has made me fond of all cedars for its sake, he answered, and it still reminds me that you were the same young girl still. She crossed the room to his side, and together they looked out of the window, where upon the lawn of their Hampshire cottage 
a ragged Lebanon stood in a solitary state. You're as full of dreams as ever, she said gently, and I don't regret the check a bit, really. Only it would have been more real if it had been the original tree, wouldn't it? That was blown down years ago. I passed the place last year and there's not a sign of it left, he replied tenderly, and presently, when he released her from his side, she went up to the wall and carefully dusted the picture Sanderson had made of the cedar on their present lawn. She went all round the frame with her tiny handkerchief, standing on tiptoe to reach the top rim. What I liked about it, said the old fellow to himself when his wife had left the room, is the way he's made it live. All trees have it, of course, but a cedar taught it to me first. There's something trees possess that make them know I'm there when I stand close and watch. I suppose I felt it then because I was in love, and love reveals life everywhere. He glanced a moment at the Lebanon, looming gaunt and sombre through the gathering dusk. A curious, wistful expression danced a moment through his eyes. Yes, Sanderson has seen it as it is, he murmured, solemnly dreaming there in its dim, hidden life against the forest edge, and as different from that other tree in Kent as I am from, from the vicar, say. It's quite a stranger, too. I don't know anything about it, really. That other cedar I loved. This old fellow, I respect. Friendly, though, yes, on the whole, quite friendly. He's painted the friendliness right enough. He saw that. I'd like to know that man better, he added. I'd like to ask him how he saw so clearly that it stands there between this cottage and the forest, yet somehow more in sympathy with us than with the mass of woods behind, a, a sort of go-between. That I never noticed before. I see it now, through his eyes. It stands there like a sentinel, protective rather. He turned away abruptly to look through the window. He saw the great encircling mass of gloom that was the forest fringing their little lawn. It pressed up closer in the darkness. The prim garden with its formal beds of flowers seemed an impertinence almost. Some little coloured insect that sought to settle on a sleeping monster. Some gaudy fly that danced impudently down the edge of a great river that could engulf it with a toss of its smallest wave. That forest with its thousand years of growth and its deep-spreading being was some such slumbering monster. Yes, their cottage and garden stood too near its running lip. When the winds were strong and lifted its shadowy skirts of black and purple, he loved this feeling of the forest personality. He'd always loved it. Queer, he reflected, awfully queer. The tree should bring me such a sense of dim, vast living. I used to feel it particularly, I remember, in India, in Canadian woods as well, but never in little English woods, till here. And Sanderson's the only man I ever knew who felt it too. He's never said so. But there's the proof. And he turned again to the picture that he loved. A thrill of unaccustomed life ran through him as he looked. I wonder, by Jove, I wonder, his thoughts ran on, whether a tree, a in any lawful meaning of the term, can be alive. I remember some writing fellow telling me long ago that trees had once been moving things, animal organisms of some sort, that had stood so long feeding, sleeping, dreaming or something, in the same place, that they had lost the power to get away. Fancies flew pell-mell about his mind. 
and lighting a cheroot, he dropped into an armchair beside the open window and let them play. Outside, the blackbirds whistled in the shrubberies across the lawn. He smelt the earth and trees and flowers, the perfume of mown grass, and the bits of open heathland far away in the heart of the woods. The summer wind stirred very faintly through the leaves, but the great new forest hardly raised her sweeping skirts of black and purple shadow. Mr. Bittersey, however, knew intimately every detail of that wilderness of trees within. He knew all the purple combs splashed with yellow waves of gorse, sweet with juniper and myrtle, and gleaming with clear and dark-eyed pools that watched the sky. There hawks hovered, circling hour by hour, and the flicker of the peewit's flight with its melancholy, petulant cry deepened the sense of stillness. He knew the solitary trees, dwarfed, tufted, vigorous, that sang to every lost wind, travellers like the gypsies who pitched their bush-like tents beneath them. He knew the shaggy ponies with foals like baby centaurs, the chattering jays, the milky call of the cuckoos in the spring, and the boom of the bittern from the lonely marshes, the undergrowth of watching hollies. He knew, too, strange and mysterious with their dark, suggestive beauty and the yellow shimmer of their pale, dropped leaves. Here all the forest lived and breathed in safety, secure from mutilation. No terror of the axe could haunt the peace of its vast subconscious life, no terror of devastating man afflicted with the dread of premature death. It knew itself supreme, it spread and preened itself without concealment, it set no spires to carry warnings, for no wind brought messages of alarm as it bulged outwards to the sun and stars. But once its leafy portals left behind, the trees of the countryside were otherwise. The houses threatened them. They knew themselves in danger. The roads were no longer glades of silent turf, but noisy, cruel ways by which men came to attack them. They were civilized, cared for, but cared for in order that some day they might be put to death. Even in the villages, where the solemn and immemorial repose of giant chestnuts aped security, the tossing of a silver birch against their mass, impatient in the littlest wind, brought warning. Dust clogged their leaves. The inner humming of their quiet life became inaudible beneath the scream and shriek of clattering traffic. They longed and prayed to enter the great peace of the forest yonder, but they could not move. They knew, moreover, that the forest, with its august deep splendour, despised and pitied them. They were a thing of artificial gardens and belonged to beds of flowers, all forced to grow one way. I'd like to get to know that artist fellow better, was the thought upon which he returned at length to the things of practical life. I wonder if Sophie would mind him for a bit. He rose with the sound of the gong, brushing the ashes from his speckled waistcoat. He pulled the waistcoat down. He was slim and spare in figure, active in his movements. In the dim light, but for that silvery moustache, he might easily have passed for a man of forty. I'll suggest it to her anyhow, he decided on his way upstairs to dress. His thought really was that Sanderson could probably explain his world of things he'd always felt about. Trees. 
A man who could paint the soul of a cedar in that way must know it all. Why not? She gave a verdict later over the bread and butter pudding. Unless you think he'd find it dull without companions. He would paint all day in the forest, dear. I'd like to pick his brains a bit too if I could manage it. You can manage anything, David, was what she answered. For this elderly childless couple used an affectionate politeness long since deemed old-fashioned. The remark, however, displeased her, making her feel uneasy, and she didn't notice his rejoinder smiling his pleasure and content. Except yourself and our bank account, my dear? This passion of his for trees was of old a bone of contention, though very mild contention. It frightened her, that was the truth. The Bible, the Baedeker for earth and heaven, didn't mention it. Her husband, while humouring her, could never alter that instinctive dread she had. He soothed, but never changed her. She liked the woods, perhaps, as spots for shade and picnics. But she could not, as he did, love them. And after dinner, with a lamp beside the open window, he read aloud from the times the evening post had brought such fragments as he thought might interest her. The custom was invariable, except on Sundays, when, to please his wife, he dozed over Tennyson or Farrar, as their mood might be. She knitted while he read, asked gentle questions, told him his voice was a lovely reading voice, and enjoyed the little discussions that occasions prompted, because he always let her with them with, Ah, Sophia, I had never thought of it quite in that way before, but now you mention it, I must say I think there's something in it. For David Bittersey was wise. It was long after marriage, during his months of loneliness spent with trees and forest in India, his wife waiting at home in the bungalow, that his other deeper side had developed a strange passion that she couldn't understand. And after one or two serious attempts to let her share it with him, he had given up and learned to hide it from her. He learned, that is, to speak of it only casually, for since she knew it was there, to keep silence altogether would only increase her pain. So, from time to time, he skimmed the surface just to let her show him where he was wrong, and to think she won the day. It remained a debatable land of compromise. He listened with patience to her criticisms, her excursions and alarms, knowing that while it gave her satisfaction, it could not change himself. The thing lay in him too deep and true for change, but for peace's sake some meeting place was desirable and he found it thus. It was her one fault in his eyes, this religious mania carried over from her upbringing, and it did no serious harm. Great emotion could shake it sometimes out of her. She clung to it because her father taught it her, and not because she had thought it out for herself. Indeed, like many women, she never really thought at all, but merely reflected the images of others' thinking which she had learned to see. So wise in his knowledge of human nature, Old David Bittersey accepted the pain of being obliged to keep a portion of his inner life shut off from the woman he deeply loved. He regarded her little biblical phrases as oddities that still clung to a rather fine big soul, like horns and little useless things some animals have not yet lost in the course of evolution while they have outgrown their use. My dear, what is it? You frighten me. She asked it suddenly, sitting up so abruptly that her cap dropped sideways almost to her ear, for David Bittersey, behind his crackling paper, had uttered a sharp exclamation of surprise. He had lowered the sheet and was staring at her over the tops of his gold glasses. Listen to this, if you please, he said, 
a note of eagerness in his voice. Listen to this, my dear Sophia. It's from an address by Francis Darwin before the Royal Society. He's president, you know, and son of the great Darwin. Listen carefully, I beg you. It is most significant. I am listening, David, she said with some astonishment, looking up. She stopped her knitting. For a second she glanced behind her. Something had suddenly changed in the room, and it made her feel wide awake, though before she had been almost dozing. Her husband's voice and manner had introduced this new thing. Her instincts rose in warning. Do read it, dear. He took a deep breath, looking first again over the rims of his glasses to make sure of her attention. He had evidently come across something of genuine interest, although herself she often found the passages from those addresses somewhat heavy. In a deep, emphatic voice, he read aloud, It is impossible to know whether or not plants are conscious, but it is consistent with the doctrine of continuity that in all living things there is something psychic. And if we accept this point of view, if, she interrupted, scenting danger, he ignored the interruption as a thing of slight value he was accustomed to. If we accept this point of view, he continued, we must believe that in plants there exists a faint copy of what we know as consciousness in ourselves. He laid the paper down and steadily stared at her. Their eyes met. He had italicized the last phrase. For a minute or two, his wife made no reply or comment. They stared at one another in silence. He waited for the meaning of the words to reach her understanding with full import. Then he turned and read them again in part, while she, released from that curious driving look in his eyes, instinctively again glanced over her shoulder round the room. It was almost as if she felt someone had come into them, unnoticed. We must believe that in plants there exists a faint copy of what we know as consciousness in ourselves. If she repeated lamely, feeling before the stare of those questioning eyes that she must say something, but not yet having gathered her wits together quite. Consciousness, he rejoined, and then he added gravely, that, my dear, is the statement of a scientific man of the twentieth century. Mr. Bittersey sat forward in her chair so that her silk flounces crackled louder than the newspaper. She made a characteristic little sound between sniffling and snorting. She put her shoes closely together with her hands upon her knees. David, she said quietly, I think these scientific men are simply losing their heads. There's nothing in the Bible that I can remember about any such thing whatsoever. Nothing, Sophia, that I can remember either, he answered patiently. Then, after a pause, he added, half to himself, perhaps more than to her, and now that I come to think about it, it seems that Sanderson once said something to me that was similar. Then Mr. Sanderson is a wise and thoughtful man, and a safe man, she quickly took up, if he said that. For she thought her husband referred to her remark about the Bible, and not to her judgment of the scientific men, and he did not correct her mistake. And plants, you see, dear, are not quite the same as trees, she drove her advantage home. Not quite, that is. I agree, said David quietly but both belong to the great vegetable kingdom. There was a moment's pause before she answered. Pa, the vegetable kingdom, indeed! She tossed her pretty old head, and into the words she put a degree of contempt. But could the vegetable kingdom have heard it, might have made it feel ashamed for covering a third of the world with its wonderful tangled network of roots and branches, 
delicate shaking leaves, and its millions of spires that caught the sun and wind and rain. Its very right to existence seemed in question. 2. Sanderson accordingly came down, and on the whole his short visit was a success. Why he came at all was a mystery to those who heard of it, for he never paid visits, and was certainly not the kind of man to court a customer. There must have been something in Bittersey he liked. Mrs. Bittersey was glad when he left. He brought no dress suit for one thing, nor even a dinner jacket, and he wore very low collars with big balloon ties like a Frenchman, and let his hair grow longer than was nice, she felt. Not that these things were important, but that she considered them symptoms of something a little disordered. The ties were unnecessarily flowing. For all that, he was an interesting man, and in spite of his eccentricities of dress and so forth, a gentleman. Perhaps, she reflected in her genuinely charitable heart, he had other uses for twenty guineas, an invalid sister or an old mother to support. She had no notion of the cost of brushes, frames, paints and canvases, and she forgave him much for the sake of his beautiful eyes and his eager enthusiasm of manner. So many men of thirty were already blasé. Still, when the visit was over she felt relieved. She said nothing about his coming for a second time, and her husband, she was glad to notice, had likewise made no suggestion. For truth to tell, the way the younger man engrossed the older, keeping him out for hours in the forest, talking on the lawn, in the blazing sun, and in the evenings when the damp of dusk came creeping out from the surrounding woods, all regardless of his age and usual habits, was not quite to her taste. Of course, Mr. Sanderson did not know how easily those attacks of Indian fever came back, but David surely might have told him. They talked trees from morning to night. It stirred in her the old subconscious trail of dread, a trail that led ever into the darkness of big woods, and such feelings as her early evangelical training taught her were temptings. To regard them in any other way was to play with danger. Her mind, as she watched these two, was charged with curious thoughts of dread she could not understand yet feared the more on that account. The way they studied that old mangy cedar was a trifle unnecessary, unwise, she felt. It was disregarding the sense of proportion which deity had set upon the world for men's safe guidance. Even after dinner they smoked their cigars upon the low branches that swept down and touched the lawn, until at length she insisted on their coming in. Cedars, she had somewhere heard, were not safe after sundown. It was not wholesome to be too near them. To sleep beneath them was even dangerous, though what the precise danger was, she had forgotten. The upas was the tree she really meant. At any rate, she summoned David in, and Sanderson came presently after him. For a long time before deciding on this peremptory step, she had watched them surreptitiously from the drawing-room window, her husband and her guest, the dusk enveloped them with its damp veil of gauze. She saw the glowing tips of their cigars and heard the drones of voices. Bats flitted overhead, and big, silent moths whirred softly over the rhododendron blossoms. And it came suddenly to her while she watched that her husband had somehow altered these last few days, since Mr. Sanderson's arrival, in fact. A change had come over him, 
though what it was, she couldn't say. She hesitated indeed to search. That was the instinctive dread operating in her. Provided it passed, she would rather not know. Small things, of course, she noticed, small outward signs. He had neglected the times for one thing, left off his speckled waistcoats for another. He was absent-minded sometimes, showed vagueness in practical details where hitherto he showed decision. And he had begun to talk in his sleep again. These and a dozen other small peculiarities came suddenly upon her with the rush of a combined attack. They brought with them a faint distress that made her shiver. Momentarily her mind was startled, then confused, as her eyes picked out the shadowy figures in the dust, the cedar covering them, the forest close at their backs. And then, before she could think or seek internal guidance as her habit was, this whisper, muffled and very hurried, ran across her brain. It's Mr. Sanderson. Call David in at once. And she had done so. Her shrill voice crossed the lawn and died away into the forest, quickly smothered. No echo followed it. The sound fell dead against the rampart of a thousand listening trees. The damp is so very penetrating, even in summer, she murmured when they came obediently. She was half surprised at her open audacity, half repentant. They came so meekly at her call, and my husband is sensitive to fever from the east. No, please do not throw away your cigars. We can sit by the open window and enjoy the evening while you smoke. She was very talkative for a moment. Subconscious excitement was the cause. It's so still, so wonderfully still, she went on, as no one spoke, so peaceful, and the air so very sweet. And God is always near to those who need his aid. The words slipped out before she realised quite what she was saying, yet fortunately in time to lower her voice for no one heard them. They were perhaps an instinctive expression of relief. It flustered her that she could have said the thing at all. Sanderson brought her shawl and helped to arrange the chairs. She thanked him in her old-fashioned gentle way, declining the lamps which he had offered to light. They tracked the moths and insects so, I think. The three of them sat there in the gloaming. Mr. Bittacy's white moustache and his wife's yellow shawl gleaming at either end of the little horseshoe. Sanderson, with his wild black hair and shining eyes midway between them. The painter went on talking softly, continuing evidently the conversation begun with his host beneath the cedar. Mrs. Bittacy, on her guard, listened uneasily. For trees, you see, rather conceal themselves in daylight. They reveal themselves fully only after sunset. I never know a tree. He bowed here slightly towards the lady as though to apologise for something he felt she would not quite understand or like. Until I've seen it in the night. Your cedar, for instance, looking towards her husband again so that Mrs. Bittacy caught the gleaming of his turned eyes. I failed with badly at first because I did it in the morning. You shall see tomorrow what I mean. That first sketch is upstairs in my portfolio. It's quite another tree to the one you bought. That view, he leaned forward, lowering his voice, I caught one morning about two o'clock, in very faint moonlight and the stars. I saw the naked being of the thing. You mean that you went out, Mr. Sanderson, at that hour? The old lady asked with astonishment and mild rebuke. She didn't care particularly for his choice of adjectives either. 
I, I fear it was rather a liberty to take in another's house, perhaps, he answered courteously. But having chanced to wake, I saw the tree from my window and made my way downstairs. It's a wonder Boxer didn't bite you. He sleeps loose in the hall, she said. On the contrary, the dog came out with me. I hope, he added, the noise didn't disturb you, though it's rather late to say so. I feel quite guilty. His white teeth showed in the dusk as he smiled. A smell of earth and flowers stole in through the window on a breath of wandering air. Mrs. Bittacy said nothing at the moment. We both sleep like tops, put in her husband laughing. You're a courageous man, though, Sanderson, and by Jove, the picture justifies you. Few artists would have taken so much trouble, though I read once at Holman Hunt, Rossetti, or someone of that lot, painted all night in his orchard to get an effect of moonlight that he wanted. He chattered on. His wife was glad to hear his voice. It made her feel more easy in her mind. But presently the other held the floor again, and her thoughts grew darkened and afraid. Instinctively she feared the influence on her husband. The mystery and wonder that lie in woods, in forests, in great gatherings of trees everywhere seemed so real and present while he talked. The night transfigures all things in a way, he was saying, but nothing so searchingly as trees. From behind a veil that sunlight hangs before them in the day, they emerge and show themselves. Even buildings do that in a measure, but trees particularly. In the daytime they sleep, at night they wake, they manifest, turn active, live. You remember, turning politely again in the direction of his hostess, how clearly Henley understood that. That socialist person, you mean, asked the lady. Her tone and accent made the substantive sound criminal. It almost hissed the way she uttered it. Poet, yes, replied the artist tactfully. The friend of Stevenson, you remember. Stevenson, who wrote those charming children's verses. He quoted in a low voice the lines he meant. It was for once the time, the place, and the setting altogether. The words floated out across the lawn towards the wall of blue darkness, where the big forest swept the little garden with its league-long curve that was like the shoreline of a sea. A wave of distant sound that was like surf accompanied his voice, as though the wind was fain to listen too. Not to the staring day, for all the importunate questionings he pursues, in his big violent voice, shall those mild things of bulk and multitude, the trees, God's sentinels, yield of their huge unutterable selves, but at the word of the ancient sacerdotal night, night of many secrets, whose effect transfiguring, heriophantic dread, themselves alone may fully apprehend. They tremble and are changed. In each the uncouth individual soul looms forth and glooms essential, and their bodily presences touched with inordinate significance, wearing the darkness like a livery, of some mysterious and tremendous guild. They brood, they menace, they appall. The voice of Mrs. Bittacy presently broke the silence that followed. I, I like that part about God's sentinel, she murmured. There was no sharpness in her tone. It was hushed and quiet. The truth, so musically uttered, muted her shrill objection as though it had not lessened her alarm. Her husband made no comment. His cigar, she noticed, had gone out. 
Old trees in particular, continued the artist as though to himself, have very definite personalities. You can offend, wound, please them. The moment you stand within their shade, you feel whether they come out to you or whether they withdraw. He turned abruptly towards his host. You know that singular essay of Prentice Mulford's, no doubt, God in the Trees, extravagant perhaps, but yet with a fine, true beauty in it. You've never read it, no? he asked. But it was Mrs. Bittersey who answered, her husband keeping his curious deep silence. I never did. It fell like a drip of cold water from the face muffled in the yellow shawl. Even a child could have supplied the remainder of the unspoken thought. Ah, said Sanderson gently, but there is God in the trees. God, in a very subtle aspect, and sometimes I've known the trees to express it too. That which is not God, dark and terrible. Have you ever noticed, too, how clearly trees show what they want, choose their companions at least, how beaches, for instance, allow no life too near them, birds or squirrels in their boughs, nor any growth beneath? The silence in the beech wood is quite terrifying often, and how pines like bilberry bushes at their feet and sometimes little oaks, all trees making a clear, deliberate choice and holding firmly to it. Some trees, obviously, it's very strange and marked, seem to prefer the human. The old lady sat up, crackling, for this was more than she could permit. Her stiff silk dress emitted little sharp reports. We know, she answered, that he was said to have walked in the garden in the cool of the evening. The gulp betrayed the effort that it cost her. But we are nowhere told that he hid in the trees or anything like that. Trees, after all, we must remember, are only large vegetables. True, was the soft answer, but in everything that grows has life, that is, there's mystery past all finding out. The wonder that lies hidden in our own souls lies also hidden, I venture to assert, in the stupidity and silence of a mere potato. The observation was not meant to be amusing. It was not amusing. No one laughed. On the contrary, the words conveyed in too literal a sense the feeling that haunted all that conversation. Each one, in his own way, realised with beauty, with wonder, with alarm, that the talk had somehow brought the whole vegetable kingdom nearer to that of man. Some link had been established between the two. It was not wise, with that great forest listening at their very doors, to speak so plainly. The forest edged up closer while they did so. And Mrs. Bittersey, anxious to interrupt the horrid spell, broke suddenly in upon it with a matter-of-fact suggestion. She did not like her husband's prolonged silence, stillness. He seemed so negative, so changed. David, she said, raising her voice, I think you're feeling the dampness. It's grown chilly. The fever comes so suddenly, you know, and it might be wise to take the tincture. I'll go and get it, dear, at once. It's better. And before he could object, she had left the room to bring the homeopathic dose that she believed in, and that to please her, he swallowed by the tumbler full from week to week. At the moment the door closed behind her, Sanderson began again, though now in quite a different tone. Mr. Bittersey sat up in his chair. The two men obviously resumed the conversation, the real conversation, interrupted beneath the cedar, and left aside the sham one, which was so much dust merely thrown in the old lady's eyes. 
Trees love you. That's the fact, he said earnestly. Your service to them all these years abroad has made them know you. Know me? Made them, yes, he paused a moment, then added. Made them aware of your presence, aware of a force outside themselves that deliberately seeks their welfare. Don't you see? By Jove, Sanderson, this put into plain language actual sensations he had felt yet had never dared to phrase in words before. They're getting to touch with me, as it were, he ventured, laughing at his own sentence, yet laughing only with his lips. Exactly, was the quick, emphatic reply. They seek to blend with something they feel instinctively to be good for them, helpful to their essential beings, encouraging to their best expression, their life. Good Lord, sir, Bittersey heard himself saying, why, you're putting my own thoughts into words. Do you know, I've felt something like that for years, as though... He looked round to make sure his wife was not there, then finished the sentence. As though the trees were after me. Amalgamate seems the best word, perhaps, said Sanderson slowly. They would draw you to themselves. Good forces, you see, always seek to merge, evil to separate. That's why good, in the end, must always win the day, everywhere. The accumulation in the long run becomes overwhelming. Evil tends to separation, dissolution, death. The comradeship of trees, their instinct to run together, is a vital symbol. Trees in a mass are good, alone. You may take it, are generally... Well, dangerous. Look at a monkey puzzler, or better still, a holly. Look at it, watch it, understand it. Did you ever see more plainly an evil thought made visible? They're wicked. Beautiful, too. Oh, yes, there's a strange, miscalculated beauty, often in evil. That cedar, then. Not evil, no, but alien, rather. Cedars grow in forests altogether. The poor thing has drifted, that's all. They were getting rather deep. Sanderson, talking against time, spoke so fast. It was too condensed. Bittersy hardly followed that last bit. His mind floundered among his own less definite, less sorted thoughts, till presently another sentence from the artist startled him into attention again. That cedar will protect you here, though because you both have humanised it by thinking so lovingly of its presence. The others can't get past it, as it were. Protect me, he exclaimed. Protect me from their love. Sanderson laughed. We're getting rather mixed, he said. We're talking of one thing in the terms of another, really. But what I mean is, you see, that their love for you, their awareness of your personality and presence, involves the idea of winning you across the border, into themselves, into their world of living. It means, in a way, taking you over. The ideas the artist started in his mind ran furious wild races to and fro. It was like a maze sprung suddenly into movement. The whirling of the intricate lines bewildered him. They went so fast, leaving but half an explanation of their goal. He followed first one, then another, but a new one always dashed across to intercept before he could get anywhere. But, but, but India, he said presently in a lower voice, India is so far away from this little English forest. The trees, too, are utterly different, for one thing. The rustle of skirts warned of Mrs. Bittersey's approach. This was a sentence he could turn round another way in case she came up and pressed for explanation. There is communion among trees all the world over, was the strange quick reply. They always know. They always know. You think, then, 
the winds, you see, the great swift carriers, they have their ancient rights of way about the world. An easterly wind, for instance, carrying on stage by stage, as it were, linking drop messages and meanings from land to land like the birds. An easterly wind. Mrs. Bittersey swept in upon them with a tumbler. There, David, she said, that will ward off any beginnings of attack. Just a spoonful, dear. Oh, oh, not all, for he had swallowed half the contents of the single gulp as usual. Another dose before you go to bed, and the balance in the morning, first thing when you awake. She turned to her guest, who put the tumbler down for her upon the table at his elbow. She had heard them speak of the east wind. She emphasized the warning she had misinterpreted. The private part of the conversation came to an abrupt end. It is the one thing that upsets them more than any other. An east wind, she said. And I am glad, Mr. Sanderson, to hear you think so, too. Three. A deep hush followed, in the middle of which an owl was heard calling its muffled note in the forest, a big moth whirred with a soft collision against one of the windows. Mrs. Bittersey started slightly, but no one spoke. Above the trees the stars were faintly visible. From the distance came the barking of a dog. Bittersey, relighting his cigar, broke the little spell of silence that had caught all three. It's rather a comforting thought, he said, throwing the match out of the window, that life is about us everywhere and there is really no dividing line between what we call organic and inorganic. The universe, yes, said Sanderson, is all one, really. We're puzzled by the gaps we cannot see across. But as a fact, I suppose, there are no gaps at all. Mrs. Bittersey rustled ominously, holding her peace meanwhile. She feared long words she didn't understand. Beelzebub lay hid among too many syllables. In trees and plants especially, their dreams an exquisite life that no one yet has proved unconscious. Or conscious either, Mr. Sanderson, she neatly interjected. It's only man that was made after his image, not shrubberies and things. Her husband interposed without delay. It is not necessary, he explained suavely, to say that they're alive in the sense that we are alive. At the same time, with an eye to his wife, I see no harm in holding, dear, that all created things contain some measure of his life who made them. It's only beautiful to hold that he created nothing dead. We are not pantheists for all that, he added soothingly. Oh, no, not that, I hope. The word alarmed her. It was worse than Pope. Through her puzzled mind stole a stealthy, dangerous thing, like a panther. I like to think that even in decay there's life, the painter murmured. The falling apart of rotten wood breeds sentiency. There's force and motion in the falling of a dying leaf, in the breaking up and crumbling of everything, indeed, and take an inert stone. It's crammed with heat and weight and potencies of all sorts. What holds its particles together, indeed? We understand it as little as gravity or why a needle always turns to the north. Both things may be a mode of life. You think a compass has a soul, Mr. Sanderson, exclaimed the lady with a crackling of her silk flounces that conveyed a sense of outrage even more plainly than her tone. The artist smiled to himself in the darkness, but it was Bittersey who hastened to reply. 
Our friend merely suggests that these mysterious agencies, he said quietly, may be due to some kind of life we cannot understand. Why should water only run downhill? Why should trees grow at right angles to the surface of the ground and towards the sun? Why should the world spin forever on their axes? Why should fire change the form of everything it touches without really destroying them? To say these things follow the law of their being explains nothing. Mr. Sanderson merely suggests, uh, poetically, my dear, of course, that these may be manifestations of life, though life at a different stage to ours. The breath of life, we read. He, he breathed into them. These things do not breathe. She said it with triumph. Then Sanderson put in a word, but he spoke rather to himself or to his host rather than by way of serious rejoinder to the ruffled lady. But plants do breathe too, you know, he said. They breathe, they eat, they digest, they move about, and they adapt themselves to their environment as men and animals do. They have a nervous system too, at least a complex system of nuclei which have some of the qualities of nerve cells. They may have a memory too. Certainly, they know definite action in response to stimulus, and though this may be physiological, no one has proved that it is only that, and not psychological. He did not notice, apparently, the little gasp that was audible behind the yellow shawl. Bittersy cleared his throat, threw his extinguished cigar upon the lawn, crossed and recrossed his legs. And in trees, continued the other, behind a great forest, for instance, pointing towards the woods, may stand a rather splendid entity that manifests through all the thousand individual trees some huge collective life, quite as minutely and delicately organised as our own. It might merge and blend with ours under certain conditions so that we could understand it by being it, for a time at least. It might even engulf human vitality into the immense whirlpool of its own vast dreaming life. The pull of a big forest on a man can be tremendous and utterly overwhelming. The mouth of Mrs. Bittersey was heard to close with a snap. Her shawl, and particularly her crackling dress, exhaled the protest that burned within her like a pain. She was too distressed to be overawed but at the same time too confused amid the litter of words and meanings half understood to find immediate phrases she could use. Whatever the actual meaning of his language might be, however, and what subtle dangers lay concealed behind them meanwhile, they certainly wove a kind of gentle spell with the glimmering darkness that held all three delicately enmeshed there by that open window. The odours of dewy lawn, flowers, trees, and earth formed part of it. The moods, he continued, that people waken in us are due to their hidden life affecting our own. Deep calls to sleep. A person, for instance, joins you in an empty room. You both instantly change. The new arrival, though in silence, has caused a change of mood. May not the moods of nature touch and stir us in virtue of a similar prerogative? The sea... The hills, the desert, wake passion, joy, terror, as the case may be. For a few, perhaps. He glanced significantly at his host, so that Mrs. Bittersey again caught the turning of his eyes, emotions of a curious, flaming splendour that are quite nameless. Well, whence come these powers? 
surely from nothing that is dead. Does not the influence of a forest, its sway and strange ascendancy over certain minds, betray a direct manifestation of life? It lies otherwise beyond all explanation. This mysterious emanation of big woods. Some natures, of course, deliberately invited. The authority of a host of trees, he voice grew almost solemn as he said the words, is something not to be denied. One feels it here, I think, particularly. There was considerable tension in the air as he ceased speaking. Mr. Bittersey had not intended that the talk should go so far. They had drifted. He did not wish to see his wife unhappy or afraid, and he was aware, acutely so, that her feelings were stirred to a point he did not care about. Something in her, as he put it, was working up towards explosion. He sought to generalise the conversation, diluting this accumulated emotion by spreading it. The sea is his, and he made it, he suggested vaguely, hoping Sanderson would take the hint. And with the trees, it's the same. The whole gigantic vegetable kingdom, yes, the artist took him up, all at the service of man, for food, for shelter, and for a thousand purposes of his daily life. Is it not striking what a lot of the globe they cover? Exquisitely organised life, yet stationary, always ready to our hand when we want them, never running away, but the taking of them for all that is not so easy. One man shrinks from picking flowers, another from cutting down trees, and it's curious that most of the forest tales and legends are dark, mysterious, and somewhat ill-omened. The forest beings are rarely gay and harmless. The forest life is felt as terrible. Tree worship still survives today. Woodcutters, those who take the life of trees, you see, a race of haunted men. He stopped abruptly, a singular catch in his voice. Bittersy felt something even before the sentences were over. His wife, he knew, felt it still more strongly for it was in the middle of the heavy silence following upon these last remarks that Mrs. Bittersey, rising with a violent abruptness from her chair, drew the attention of the others to something moving toward them across the lawn. It came silently. In outline it was large and curiously spread. It rose high, too, for the sky above the shrubbery, still pale gold from the sunset, was dimmed by its passage. She declared afterwards that it moved in looping circles, but what she perhaps meant to convey were spirals. She screamed faintly, It's come at last, and it's you that brought it. She turned excited, half afraid, half angry, to Sanderson. With a breathless sort of gasp, she said it, politeness all forgotten, I knew it. If you went on, I knew it. Oh, oh, and she cried again, Your talking has brought it out. The terror that shook her voice was rather dreadful. But the confusion of her vehement words passed unnoticed in the first surprise they caused. For a moment, nothing happened. "'What is it you think you see, my dear?' asked her husband, startled. Sanderson said nothing. All three leaned forward, the men still sitting, but Mrs. Bittersey had rushed hurriedly to the window, placing herself of a purpose, as it seemed, between her husband and the lawn. She pointed— her little hand made a silhouette against the sky, the yellow shawl hanging from the arm like a cloud. Beyond the cedar, between it and the lilacs, the voice had lost its shrillness. It was thin and hushed, 
there. And now you see it going round upon itself again, going, going back, thank God, going back to the forest. It sang to a whisper, shaking. She repeated with a great dropping sigh of relief, thank God, I, I thought at first it was coming here to us, David, to you. She stepped back from the window, her movements confused, feeling in the darkness for the support of a chair and finding her husband's outstretched hand instead. Hold me, dear, hold me, please, tight. Don't let me go. She was in what he afterwards called a regular state. He drew her firmly down upon her chair again. Smoke, Sophie, my dear, he said quickly, trying to make his voice calm and natural. I see it, yes, it's smoke, blowing over from the gardener's cottage. But, but David, and there was a new horror in her whisper now, it made a noise. It makes it still. I hear it swishing. Some such word she used, swishing, sishing, rushing, or something of the kind. David, I'm very frightened. It's something awful. That man has called it out. Hush, hush, whispered her husband. He stroked her trembling hand beside him. It's in the wind, said Sanderson, speaking for the first time very quietly. The expression on his face was not visible in the gloom, but his voice was soft and unafraid. At the sound of it, Mrs. Bittacy started violently again. Bittacy drew his chair a little forward to obstruct her view of him. He felt bewildered himself a little, hardly knowing quite what to say or to do. It was also very curious and sudden. But Mrs. Bittacy was badly frightened. It seemed to her that what she saw came from the enveloping forest just beyond their little garden. It emerged in a sort of secret way, moving towards them as with a purpose, stealthily, difficultly. Then something stopped it. It could not advance beyond the cedar. The cedar, uh, this impression remained with her afterwards too, prevented, kept it back. Like a rising sea, the forest had surged forward a moment in their direction through the covering darkness, and this visible movement was its first wave. Thus to her mind it seemed, like that mysterious turn of the tide that used to frighten and mystify her in childhood on the sands. The outward surge of some enormous power was what she felt, something to which every instinct in her being rose in opposition because it threatened her and hers. In that moment she realised the personality of the forest. Menacing. In the stumbling movement that she made away from the window and towards the bell she barely caught the sentence Sanderson, or was it her husband, murmured to himself. It came because we talked of it. Our thinking made it aware of us and brought it out. But the cedar stops it. It cannot cross the lawn, you see. All three were standing now and her husband's voice broke in with authority while his wife's fingers touched the bell. My dear, I should not say anything to Thompson. The anxiety he felt was manifest in his voice, but his outward composure had returned. The gardener can go. Then Sanderson cut him short. Allow me, he said quickly. I'll, I'll see if anything's wrong. And before either of them could answer or object, he was gone, leaping out by the open window. They saw his figure vanish with a run across the lawn into the darkness. A moment later the maid entered in answer to the bell, and with her came the loud barking of the terrier from the hall. The lamps, said her master shortly, and as she softly closed the door behind her, they heard the wind pass with a mournful sound of singing round the outer walls. 
a rustle of foliage from the distance passed within it. You see, the wind is rising. It, it was the wind. He put a comforting arm around her, distressed to feel that she was trembling. But he knew that he was trembling too, though with a kind of odd elation rather than alarm. And it was smoke that you saw coming from Stride's cottage or, or from the rubbish heaps he's been burning in the kitchen garden. The noise we heard was the branches rustling in the wind. Why should you be so nervous? A thin, whispering voice answered him. I was afraid for you, dear. Something frightened me for you. That man makes me feel so uneasy and uncomfortable for his influence upon you. It's very foolish, I know. I think I'm tired. I feel so overwrought and restless. The words poured out in a hurried jumble, and she kept turning to the window while she spoke. The strain of having a visitor, he said soothingly, has taxed you. We're so unused to having people in the house. He goes tomorrow. He warmed her cold hands between his own, stroking them tenderly. More for the life of him he could not say, or do. The joy of a strange internal excitement made his heart beat faster. He knew not what it was. He knew only, perhaps, whence it came. She peered close into his face through the gloom and said a curious thing. I thought, David, for a moment, you seemed different. My nerves are all on edge tonight. She made no further reference to her husband's visitor. A sound of footsteps from the lawn warned of Saunderson's return. As he answered quickly in a lowered tone, There's no need to be afraid on my account, dear girl. There's nothing wrong with me, I assure you. I never felt so well and happy in my life. Thompson came in with the lamps and brightness, and scarcely had she gone again when Sanderson in turn was seen climbing through the window. There's nothing, he said lightly as he closed it behind him. Somebody's been burning leaves and the smoke is drifting a little through the trees. The wind, he added, glancing at his host a moment significantly but in so discreet a way that Mrs. Bittacy did not observe it. The wind too has begun to roar in the forest, further out. But Mrs. Bittacy noticed about him two things which increased her uneasiness. She noticed the shining of his eyes, because a similar light had suddenly come into her husband's, and she noticed too the apparent depth of meaning he put into those simple words that the wind had begun to roar in the forest, further out. Her mind retained the disagreeable impression that he meant more than he said. In his tone lay quite another implication. It was not actually wind he spoke of, and it would not remain further out. Rather, it was coming in. Another impression she got too, still more unwelcome, was that her husband understood his hidden meaning. 4. David, dear, she observed gently as soon as they were alone upstairs, I have a horrible uneasy feeling about that man. I cannot get rid of it. The tremor in her voice caught all his tenderness. He turned to look at her. Of what kind, my dear? You are so imaginative sometimes, aren't you? I think she hesitated, stammering a little, confused, still frightened. I mean, isn't he a hypnotist, or 
full of those theosophical ideas or something of the sort. Uh, you know what I mean. He was too accustomed to her little confused alarms to explain them away seriously as a rule, or to correct her verbal inaccuracies, but tonight he felt she needed careful, tender treatment. He soothed her as best he could. But there's no harm in that, even if he is, he answered quietly. Those are only new names for very old ideas, you know, dear. There was no trace of impatience in his voice. That's what I mean, she replied. The text he dreaded, rising in an unuttered crowd behind the words. He's one of those things that we were warned would come, one of those latter-day things. For her mind still bristled with the bogies of the Antichrist and prophecy, and she had only escaped a number of the beasts, as it were, by the skin of her teeth. The Pope drew most of her fire usually because she couldn't understand him. The target was plain, and she could shoot. But this tree and forest business was so vague and horrible. It terrified her. He makes me think, she went on, of principalities and, and powers in high places, and of things that walk in the darkness. I did not like the way he spoke of trees getting alive in the night and all that. It made me think of wolves in sheep's clothing and when I saw that awful thing in the sky above the lawn. But he interrupted her at once, for that was something he had decided it was best to leave unmentioned. Certainly, it was better not discussed. He only meant, I think, Sophie, he put in gravely, yet with a little smile, the trees may have a measure of conscious life. Rather a nice idea on the whole, surely. Something like that bit we read in the Times the other night, you remember and that a big forest may possess a sort of collective personality. Remember, he's an artist, and poetical. It's dangerous, she said emphatically. I feel it's playing with fire, unwise and unsafe. Yet all to the glory of God, he urged gently. We must not shut our ears and eyes to knowledge of any kind, must we? With you, David, the wish is always farther than the thought, she rejoined for like the child who thought that suffered under Pontius Pilate was suffered under a bunch of violets, she heard her proverbs phonetically and reproduced them thus. She hoped to convey her warning in the quotation, and we must always try the spirits whether they be of God, she added tentatively. Certainly, dear, we can always do that, he assented, getting into bed. But after a little pause, during which she blew the light out, David Bittersey settling down to sleep with an excitement in his blood that was new and bewilderingly delightful, realised that perhaps he had not said quite enough to comfort her. She was lying awake by his side, still frightened. He put his head up in the darkness. Sophie, he said softly, you must remember too that in any case between us and, and all that sort of thing, there is a great gulf fixed, a gulf that cannot be crossed, uh, while we are still in the body, and hearing no reply, he satisfied himself that she was already asleep and happy. But Mrs. Bittersey was not asleep. She heard the sentence, only she said nothing because she felt her thought was better unexpressed. She was afraid to hear the words in the darkness. The forest outside was listening, and might hear them too. The forest that was roaring further out. And the thought was this. That gulf, of course, existed, but Sanderson had somehow bridged it.
It was much later that night when she awoke out of troubled uneasy dreams and heard a sound that twisted her very nerves with fear. It passed immediately with full waking, for listen as she might, there was nothing audible but the inarticulate murmur of the night. It was in her dreams she heard it, and the dreams had vanished with it, but the sound was recognisable, for it was that rushing noise that had come across the lawn, only this time closer. Just above her face, while she slept, had passed this murmur, as of rustling branches in the very room, the sound of foliage whispering, a going in the tops of the mulberry trees ran through her mind. She had dreamed that she lay beneath a spreading tree somewhere, a tree that whispered with ten thousand soft lips of green, and the dream continued for a moment, even after waking. She sat up in bed and stared about her. The window was open at the top. She saw the stars. The door, she remembered, was locked as usual. The room, of course, was empty. The deep hush of the summer night lay over all, broken only by another sound that now issued from the shadows close beside the bed, a human sound yet unnatural, a sound that seized the fear with which she had wakened and instantly increased it. And although it was one she recognised as familiar at first, she could not name it. Some seconds certainly passed, and they were very long ones, before she understood that it was her husband talking in his sleep. The direction of the voice confused and puzzled her, moreover, for it was not, as she first supposed, beside her. There was distance in it. The next minute, by the light of the sinking candle flame, she saw his white figure standing out in the middle of the room, halfway towards the window. The candlelight slowly grew. She saw him move, then nearer to the window, with arms outstretched. His speech was low and mumbled, the words running together too much to be distinguishable, and she shivered. To her, sleep-talking was uncanny to the point of horror. It was like the talking of the dead, a mere parody of a living voice. Unnatural. David, she whispered dreading the sound of her own voice and half afraid to interrupt him and see his face. She could not bear the sight of the wide-opened eyes. David, you're walking in your sleep. Do come back to bed, dear. Please. Her whisper seemed so dreadfully loud in the still darkness. At the sound of her voice, he paused, then turned slowly round to face her. His widely opened eyes stared into her own without recognition. They looked through her into something beyond. It was as though he knew the direction of the sound, yet could not see her. They were shining, she noticed, as the eyes of Sanderson had shone several hours ago, and his face was flushed and distraught. Anxiety was written upon every feature, and instantly recognising that the fever was upon him, she forgot her terror temporarily in practical considerations. He came back to bed without waking. She closed his eyelids. Presently he composed himself quietly to sleep, or rather to deeper sleep. She contrived to make him swallow something from the tumbler beside the bed. Then she rose very quietly to close the window, feeling the night air blow in too fresh and keen. She put the candle where it could not reach him. 
The sight of the big Baxter Bible beside it comforted her a little, but all through her underbeing ran the warnings of a curious alarm. And it was while in the act of fastening the catch with one hand and pulling the string of the blind with the other that her husband sat up again in bed and spoke in words this time that were distinctly audible. His eyes had opened wide again. He pointed. She stood stock still and listened. Her shadow distorted on the blind. He did not come out towards her, as at first she feared. The whispering voice was very clear, horrible too, beyond all she had ever known. They are roaring in the forest, further out, and, and I must go and see. He stared beyond her as he said it to the woods. They are, they are needing me, that they sent for me. Then, his eyes wandering back again to things within the room, he lay down. His purpose suddenly changed. And that change was horrible as well, more horrible perhaps, because of its revelation of another detailed world he moved in far away from her. The singular phrase chilled her blood. For a moment she was utterly terrified. That tone of the sonambulist differing so slightly yet so distressingly from normal waking speech seemed to her somehow wicked. Evil and danger lay waiting thick behind it. She leaned against the windowsill, shaking in every limb. She had an awful feeling for a moment that something was coming in to fetch him. Not yet, then, she heard in a much lower voice from the bed. But later. It will be better so. I shall go later. The words expressed some fringe of these alarms that had haunted her so long, and that the arrival and presence of Sanderson seemed to have brought to the very edge of a climax she could not even dare to think about. They gave it form. They brought it closer. They sent her thoughts to her deity in a wild, deep prayer for help and guidance. For here was a direct, unconscious betrayal of a world of inner purposes and claims her husband recognised, while he kept them almost wholly to himself. By the time she reached his side and knew the comfort of his touch, the eyes had closed again, this time of their own accord, and the head lay calmly back upon the pillows. She gently straightened the bedclothes. She watched him for some minutes, shading the candle carefully with one hand, there was a smile of strangest peace upon the face. Then, blowing out the candle, she knelt down and prayed before getting back into bed. But no sleep came to her. She lay awake all night thinking, wondering, praying, until at length, with the chorus of the birds and the glimmer of the dawn upon the green blind, she fell into a slumber of complete exhaustion. But while she slept... The wind continued roaring in the forest further out. The sound came closer, sometimes very close indeed. 5. With the departure of Sanderson, the significance of the curious incidents waned because the moods that had produced them passed away. Mrs. Bittersey soon afterwards came to regard them as some growth of disproportion that had been very largely, perhaps, in her own mind. It did not strike her that this change was sudden, for it came about quite naturally. 
For one thing, her husband never spoke of the matter, and for another, she remembered how many things in life that had seemed inexplicable and singular at the time turned out later to have been quite commonplace. Most of it certainly she put down to the presence of the artist and to his wild, suggestive talk. With his welcome removal, the world turned ordinary again and safe. The fever, though it lasted as usual a short time only, had not allowed of her husband's getting up to say goodbye, and she had conveyed his regrets and adieu. In the morning, Mr. Sanderson had seemed ordinary enough. In his town hat and gloves, as she saw him go, he seemed tame and unalarming. After all, she thought, as she watched the pony cart bear him off, he's only an artist. What she had thought he might be otherwise, her slim imagination did not venture to disclose. A change of feeling was wholesome and refreshing. She felt a little ashamed of her behaviour. She gave him a smile, genuine, because the relief she felt was genuine, as he bent over her hand and kissed it. But she did not suggest a second visit, and her husband, she noted with satisfaction and relief, had said nothing either. The little household fell again into the normal and sleepy routine to which it was accustomed. The name of Arthur Sanderson was rarely, if ever, mentioned. Nor for her part did she mention to her husband the incident of his walking in his sleep and the wild words he used. But to forget it was equally impossible. Thus it lay buried deep within her like a centre of some unknown disease of which it was a mysterious symptom waiting to spread at the first favourable opportunity. She prayed against it every night and morning, prayed that she might forget it, that God would keep her husband safe from harm, for in spite of much surface foolishness that many might have read as weakness, Mrs. Bittersey had balanced sanity and a fine deep faith. She was greater than she knew. Her love for her husband and her God were somehow one, an achievement only possible to a single-hearted nobility of soul. There followed a summer of great violence and beauty, of beauty because the refreshing rains at night prolonged the glory of the spring and spread it all across July, keeping the foliage young and sweet, of violence because the winds that tore about the south of England brushed the whole country into dancing movement. They swept the woods magnificently and kept them roaring with a perpetual grand voice. Their deepest notes seemed never to leave the sky. They sang and shouted, and torn leaves raced and fluttered through the air long before their usually appointed time. Many a tree, after days of roaring and dancing, fell exhausted to the ground. The cedar on the lawn gave up two limbs that fell upon successive days, at the same hour too, just before dusk. The wind often makes its most boisterous effort at that time before it drops with the sun and these two huge branches lay in dark ruin covering half the lawn. They spread across it and towards the house. They left an ugly gaping space upon the tree, so that the Lebanon looked unfinished, half destroyed, a monster shorn of its old-time comeliness and splendour. Far more of the forest was now visible than before. It peered through the breach of the broken defences, they could see from the windows of the house now, especially from the drawing-room and bedroom windows, straight out into the glades and depths beyond. 
Mrs. Bittis's niece and nephew, who were staying on a visit at the time, enjoyed themselves immensely helping the gardeners carry off the fragments. It took two days to do this, but Mr. Bittacy insisted on the branches being moved entire. He would not allow them to be chopped. Also, he would not consent to their use as firewood. Upon his superintendence, the unwieldy masses were dragged to the edge of the garden and arranged upon the frontier line between the forest and the lawn. The children were delighted with the scheme. They entered into it with enthusiasm. At all costs, this defence against the inroads of the forest must be made secure. They caught their uncle's earnestness, felt even something of a hidden motive that he had, and the visit, usually rather dreaded, became the visit of their lives instead. It was Aunt Sophia this time who seemed discouraging and dull. She's got so old and funny, opined Stephen. But Alice, who felt in the silent displeasure of her aunt some secret thing that alarmed her, said, I think she's afraid of the woods. She never comes into them with us, you see. All the more reason, then, for making this wall impreg all fat and thick and solid, he concluded, unable to manage the longer word. Then nothing, simply nothing can get through, can't it, Uncle David? And Mr. Bittacy, jacket discarded and working in his speckled waistcoat, went puffing to their aid, arranging the massive limb of the cedar like a hedge. Come on, he said, whatever happens, you know, we must finish before it's dark. Already the wind's roaring in the forest further out. And Alice caught the phrase and instantly echoed it. Stevie, she cried below her breath, look sharp, you lazy lump. Didn't you hear what Uncle David said? It'll come in and catch us before we've done. They worked like Trojans and sitting beneath the wisteria tree that climbed the southern wall of the cottage, Mrs. Bittacy, with her knitting, watched them, calling from time to time insignificant messages of counsel and advice. The messages passed, of course, unheeded. Mostly, indeed, they were unheard, for the workers were too absorbed. She warned her husband not to get too hot, Alice not to tear her dress, Stephen not to strain his back with pulling, her mind hovered between the homeopathic medicine chest upstairs and her anxiety to see the business finished. For this breaking up of the cedar had stirred again her slumbering alarms. It revived memories of the visit of Mr. Sanderson that had been sinking into oblivion. She recalled his queer and odious way of talking, and many things she hoped forgotten drew their heads up from that subconscious region to which all forgetting is impossible. They looked at her and nodded. They were full of life. They had no intention of being pushed aside and buried permanently. Now look, they whispered. Didn't we tell you so? They had been merely waiting the right moment to assert their presence, and all her former vague distress crept over her. Anxiety, uneasiness returned. That dreadful sinking of the heart came too. This incident of the cedars breaking up was actually so unimportant and yet her husband's attitude towards it made it so significant. There was nothing that he said in particular, or did, or left undone, that frightened her, but his general air of earnestness seemed so unwarranted. She felt that he deemed the thing important. He was so exercised about it. This evidence of sudden concern and interest buried all the summer from her sight and knowledge she realised now had been buried purposely. He had kept it intentionally concealed. Deeply submerged in him, there ran this tide of other thoughts, desires, hopes, 
What were they? Whither did they lead? The accident to the tree betrayed it most unpleasantly, and doubtless more than he was aware. She watched his grave and serious face as he worked there with the children, and as she watched, she felt afraid. It vexed her that the children worked so eagerly, they unconsciously supported him, the thing she feared she would not even name. But it was waiting. Moreover, as far as her puzzled mind could deal with a dread so vague and incoherent, the collapse of the cedar somehow brought it nearer. The fact that, all so ill-explained and formless, the thing yet lay in her consciousness, out of reach, but moving and alive, filled her with a kind of puzzled, dreadful wonder. Its presence was so very real, its power so gripping, its partial concealment so abominable. Then, out of the dim confusion, she grasped one thought and saw it stand quite clear before her eyes. She found difficulty in clothing it in words, but its meaning perhaps was this. That cedar stood in their life for something friendly. Its downfall meant disaster. A sense of some protective influence about the cottage, and about her husband in particular, was thereby weakened. Why do you fear the big winds so? he had asked her several days before, after a particularly boisterous day. And the answer she gave surprised her while she gave it. One of those heads poked up unconsciously and let slip the truth. Because, David, I feel they bring the forest with them, she faltered. They blow something from the trees into the mind, into the house. He looked at her keenly for a moment. That must be why I love them, then, he answered. They blow the souls of the trees about the sky like clouds. The conversation dropped. She had never heard him talk in quite that way before. And another time, when he had coaxed her to go with him down one of the nearer glades, she asked why he took the small hand-axe with him, and what he wanted it for. To cut the ivy that clings to the trunks and takes their life away, he said. But can't the vergerists do that? she asked. That's what they're paid for, isn't it? Whereupon he explained that ivy was a parasite that trees knew not how to fight alone, and that the vergerists were careless and did not do it thoroughly. They give a chop here and there, leaving the tree to do the rest for itself if it could. Besides, I like to do it for them. I love to help them and protect, he added, the foliage rustling all about his quiet words as they went. And these stray remarks, as his attitude towards the broken cedar, betrayed this curious, subtle change that was going forward to his personality. Slowly and surely, all the summer it had increased. It was growing. The thought startled her horribly, just as a tree grows. The outer evidence from day to day so slight as to be unnoticeable, yet the rising tide so deep and irresistible. The alteration spread all through and over him, was in both mind and actions, sometimes almost in his face as well. Occasionally thus it stood up straight outside himself and frightened her. His life was somehow becoming linked so intimately with trees and with all the trees signified, his interests became more and more their interests. His activity combined with theirs, his thoughts and feelings theirs, his purpose, hope, desire, his fate. His fate. The darkness of some vague, enormous terror dropped its shadow on her when she thought of it. 
Some instinct in her heart she dreaded infinitely more than death, for death meant sweet translation for his soul, came gradually to associate the thought of him with the thought of trees, in particular with these forest trees. Sometimes, before she could face the thing, argue it away or pray it into silence, she found the thought of him running swiftly through her mind like a thought of the forest itself, the two almost intimately linked and joined together, each a part and complement of the other, one being. The idea was too dim for her to see it face to face. Its mere possibility dissolved the instant she focused it to get to the truth behind it. It was too utterly elusive, made, protean. Under the attack of even a minute's concentration, the very meaning of it vanished, melted away. The idea lay really behind any words that she could ever find, beyond the touch of definite thought. Her mind was unable to grapple with it. But while it vanished, the trail of its approach and disappearance flickered a moment before her shaking vision. The horror certainly remained. Reduced to the simple human statement that her temperament sought instinctively, it stood perhaps at this. Her husband loved her, and he loved the trees as well. But the trees came first, claimed parts of him she didn't know. She loved her God and him. He loved the trees and her. Thus, in guise of some faint, distressing compromise, the matter shaped itself for her perplexed mind in terms of conflict, a silent hidden battle raged, but as yet raged far away. The breaking of the cedar was a visible outward fragment of a distant and mysterious encounter that was coming daily closer to them both. The wind, instead of roaring in the forest further out, now came nearer, booming in fitful gusts about its edge and frontiers. Meanwhile, the summer dimmed. The autumn winds went sighing through the woods, Leaves turned to golden red, and the evenings were drawing in with cosy shadows before the first sign of anything seriously untoward made its appearance. It came then with a flat, decided kind of violence that indicated mature preparation beforehand. It was not impulsive nor ill-considered. In a fashion, it seemed expected and indeed inevitable. For within a fortnight of their annual change to the little village of Celians above St. Raphael, a change so regular for the past ten years that it was not even discussed between them, David Bittersey abruptly refused to go. Thompson had laid the tea-table, prepared the spirit-lamp beneath the urn, pulled down the blinds in that swift and silent way she had, and left the room. The lamps were still unlit. The firelight shone on the chintz armchairs and Boxer lay asleep on the black horsehair rug. Upon the walls, the gilt picture frames gleamed faintly, the pictures themselves indistinguishable. Mrs. Bittersey had warmed the teapot, and was in the act of pouring the water in to heat the cups when her husband, looking up from his chair across the hearth, made the abrupt announcement. My dear, he said, as though following a train of thought, of which she only heard this final phrase, it's really quite impossible for me to go and so abrupt, inconsequent it sounded, that she at first misunderstood. She thought he meant to go out into the garden or the woods, but her heart leaped all the same. The tone of his voice was ominous. Of course not, she answered. It would be most unwise. Why should you? She referred to the mist that always spread on autumn nights upon the lawn. 
Before she finished the sentence, she knew that he referred to something else, and her heart then gave its second horrible leap. David, you mean abroad? she gasped. I mean abroad, dear, yes. It reminded her of the tone he used when saying goodbye years ago, before one of those jungle expeditions she dreaded. His voice then was so serious, so final. It was serious and final now. For several moments she could think of nothing to say. She busied herself with the teapot. She had filled one cup with hot water till it overflowed, and she emptied it slowly into the slop basin, trying with all her might not to let him see the trembling of her hand. The firelight and the dimness of the room both helped her, but in any case, he would hardly have noticed it. His thoughts were far away. 6. Mrs. Bittacy had never liked their present home. She preferred a flat, more open country that left approaches clear. She liked to see things coming. This cottage on the very edge of the old hunting grounds of William the Conqueror had never satisfied her ideal of a safe and pleasant place to settle down in. The sea coast, the treeless downs behind and a clear horizon in front, as at Eastbourne, say, was her ideal of a proper home. It was curious, this instinctive aversion she felt to being shut in, by trees especially, a kind of claustrophobia almost probably due, as has been said, to the days in India, when the trees took her husband off and surrounded him with dangers. In those weeks of solitude the feeling had matured. She had fought it in her fashion, but never conquered it. Apparently routed, it had had a way of creeping back in other forms. In this particular case, yielding to his strong desire, she thought the battle won but the terror of the trees came back before the first month had passed. They laughed in her face. She never lost knowledge of the fact that the leagues of forest lay about their cottage like a mighty wall, a crowding, watching, listening presence that shut them in from freedom and escape. Far from morbid naturally, she did her best to deny the thought, and so simple and unartificial was her type of mind that for weeks together she would not wholly lose it. Then, suddenly, it would return upon her with a rush of bleak reality. It was not only in her mind. It existed apart from any mere wood, a separate fear that walked alone. It came and went, yet when it went, went only to watch her from another point of view. It was in abeyance, hidden round the corner. The forest never let her go completely. It was ever ready to encroach. All the branches, she sometimes fancied, stretched one way, towards their tiny cottage and garden, as though it sought to draw them in and merge them in itself. Its great, deep-breathing soul resented the mockery, the innocence, the irritation of the prim garden at its very gates. It would absorb and smother them if it could and every wind that blew its thundering message over the huge sounding board of the million shaking trees conveyed the purpose that it had. They had angered its great soul, and its heart was this deep, incessant roaring. All this she never framed in words. The subtleties of language lay far beyond her reach, but instinctively she felt it, and more besides. It troubled her profoundly, 
chiefly, moreover, for her husband. Merely for herself, the nightmare might have left her cold. It was David's peculiar interest in the trees that gave the special invitation. Jealousy, then, in its most subtle aspect, came to strengthen this aversion and dislike, for it came in a form that no reasonable wife could possibly object to. Her husband's passion, she reflected, was natural and inborn. It had decided his vocation, fed his ambition, nourished his dreams, desires, hopes. All his best years of active life had been spent in the care and guardianship of trees. He knew them, understood their secret life and nature, managed them intuitively as other men managed dogs and horses. He could not live for long away from them without a strange, acute nostalgia that stole his peace of mind, and consequently his strength of body. The forest made him happy and at peace. It nursed and fed and soothed his deepest moods. Trees influenced the sources of his life, lowered or raised the very heartbeat in him. Cut off from them, he languished as a lover of the sea can droop inland. Or a mountaineer may pine in the flat monotony of the plains. This she could understand, in a fashion at least, and make allowances for. She had yielded gently, even sweetly, to his choice of their English home, for in the little island there is nothing that suggests the woods of wilder country so nearly as the new forest. It has the genuine air and mystery, the depths and splendour, the loneliness, and there and there the strong, untamable quality of old-time forests as bittersy of the department knew them. In a single detail only had he yielded to her wishes. He consented to a cottage on the edge instead of in the heart of it, and for a few years now they had dwelt in peace and happiness at the lips of this great spreading thing that covered so many leagues with its tangle of swamps and moors and splendid ancient trees. Only with the last two years or so, with his own increasing age and physical decline perhaps, had come this marked growth of passionate interest in the welfare of the forest. She had watched it grow, at first had laughed at it, then talked sympathetically so far as sincerity permitted, then had argued mildly, and finally come to realise that its treatment lay altogether beyond her powers, and so had come to fear it with all her heart. The six weeks they annually spent away from their English home, each regarded very differently, of course. For her husband it meant a painful exile that did his health no good. He yearned for his trees, the sight and sound and smell of them, but for herself it meant release from a haunting dread, escape. To renounce those six weeks by the sea on the sunny, shining coast of France was almost more than this little woman, even with her unselfishness, could face. After the first shock of the announcement, she reflected as deeply as her nature permitted, prayed, wept in secret, and made up her mind. Duty, she felt clearly, pointed to renouncement, the discipline would certainly be severe. But this fine, consistent little Christian saw it plain. She accepted it too, without any sighing of the martyr, though the courage she showed was of the martyr order. Her husband should never know the cost. In all but this one passion, his unselfishness was ever as great as her own. The love she had borne him all these years, like the love she bore her anthropomorphic deity, was deep and real. She loved to suffer for them both. Besides, 
the way her husband had put it to her was singular. It did not take the form of a mere selfish predilection. Something higher than two wills in conflict seeking compromise was in it from the beginning. I feel, Sophia, it would really be more than I could manage, he said slowly, gazing into the fire over the tops of his stretched out muddy boots. My duty and my happiness lie here with the forest and with you. My life is deeply rooted in this place. Something I can't define connects my inner being with these trees, and separation would make me ill. Might even kill me. My hold on life would weaken. Here is my source of supply. I cannot explain it better than that. He looked up steadily into her face across the table so that she saw the gravity of his expression and the shining of his steady eyes. David, you feel it as strongly as that, she said, forgetting the tea things altogether. Yes, he replied, I do, and it's not of the body only. I feel it in my soul. The reality of what he hinted at crept into that shadow-covered room like an actual presence and stood beside them. It came not by the windows or the door, but it filled the entire space between the walls and ceiling. It took the heat from the fire before her face. She felt suddenly cold, confused a little, frightened. She almost felt the rush of foliage in the wind. It stood between them. There are things, some things, she faltered. We are not intended to know, I think. The words expressed her general attitude to life, not alone to this particular incident and after a pause of several minutes, disregarding the criticism as though he had not heard it, I cannot explain it better than that, you see, his grave voice answered. There is in this deep, tremendous link some secret power they emanate that keeps me well and happy and alive. If you cannot understand, I feel at least you may be able to forgive. His tone grew tender, gentle, soft. My selfishness, I know, must seem quite unforgivable. I cannot help it somehow. These trees, this ancient forest, both seem knitted into all that makes me live, and if I go... There was a little sound of collapse in his voice. He stood abruptly and sank back in his chair, and at that a distinct lump came into her throat, which she had great difficulty in managing while she went over and put her arms about him. My dear, she murmured, God will direct. We will accept his guidance. He has always shown the way before. My selfishness afflicts me, he began, but she would not let him finish. David, he will direct. Nothing shall harm you. You've never once been selfish, and I cannot bear to hear you say such things. The way will open that is best for you, for both of us. She kissed him. She would not let him speak. Her heart was in her throat, and she felt for him far more than for herself. And then he had suggested that she should go alone, perhaps for a shorter time, and stay in her brother's villa with the children, Alice and Stephen. It was always open to her, she knew well. You need the change, he said, when the lamps had been lit and the servant had gone out again. You need it, as much as I dread it. I could manage somehow until you returned, and should feel happier that way if you went. I cannot leave this forest that I love so well. I even feel, Sophie dear, he sat up straight and faced her as he half whispered it. That I can never leave it again. My life and happiness lie here together. And even while scorning the idea that she could leave him alone with the influence of the forest all about him to have its unimpeded way, she felt the pangs of that subtle jealousy bite keen and close. 
He loved the forest better than herself, for he placed it first. Behind the words, moreover, hid the unuttered thought that made her so uneasy. The terror Sanderson had brought revived and shook its wings before her very eyes, for the whole conversation of which this was a fragment conveyed the unutterable implication that while he could not spare the trees, they equally could not spare him. The vividness with which he had managed to conceal and yet betray the fact brought a profound distress that crossed the border between presentiment and warning into positive alarm. He clearly felt that the trees would miss him, the trees he tended, guarded, watched over, loved. David, I shall stay here with you. I think you need me really, don't you? Eagerly, with a touch of heartfelt passion, the words poured out. Now more than ever, dear, God bless you for your sweet unselfishness. And your sacrifice, he added, is all the greater because you cannot understand the thing that makes it necessary for me to stay. Perhaps in the spring, instead, she said with a tremor in the voice. In the spring, perhaps, he answered gently, almost beneath his breath, for they will not need me then. All the world can love them in the spring. It's in the winter that they're lonely and neglected. I wish to stay with them particularly then. I even feel I ought to, and I must. And in this way, without further speech, the decision was made. Mrs. Bittersey at least asked no more questions. Yet she could not bring herself to show more sympathy than was necessary. She felt for one thing that if she did, it might lead him to speak freely and to tell her things she could not possibly bear to know. And she dared not take the risk of that. 7. This was at the end of summer, but the autumn followed close. The conversation really marked the threshold between the two seasons, and marked at the same time the line between her husband's negative and aggressive state. She almost felt she had done wrong to yield. He grew so bold, concealment all discarded, he went, that is, quite openly to the woods, forgetting all his duties, all his former occupations. He even sought to coax her to go with him. The hidden thing blazed out without disguise, and while she trembled at his energy, she admired the virile passion he displayed. Her jealousy had long ago retired before her fear, accepting the second place. Her one desire now was to protect. The wife turned holy mother. He said so little, but he hated to come in. From morning to night he wandered in the forest. Often he went out after dinner. His mind was charged with trees, their foliage, growth, development, their wonder, beauty, strength, their loneliness in isolation, their power in a herded mass. He knew the effect of every wind upon them, the danger from the boisterous north, the glory from the west, the eastern dryness and the soft, moist tenderness that a south wind left upon their thinning boughs. He spoke all day of their sensations, how they drank the fading sunshine, dreamed in the moonlight, thrilled to the kiss of stars. The dew could bring them half the passion of the night, but frost sent them plunging beneath the ground to dwell with hopes of a later coming, softness in their roots. They nursed the life they carried, insects, larvae, chrysalis, and when the skies above them melted, he spoke of them standing motionless in an ecstasy of rain, or in the noon of sunshine, 
self-poised upon their prodigy of shade. And once, in the middle of the night, she awoke to the sound of his voice and heard him wide awake, not talking in his sleep, but talking towards the window where the shadow of the cedar fell at noon. Oh, art thou sighing for Lebanon, in the long breeze that streams to thy delicious east, sighing for Lebanon, dark cedar. And when, half charmed, half terrified, she turned and called him by name, he merely said, My dear, I felt the loneliness, suddenly realised it. The alien desolation of that tree said here upon our little lawn in England, when all her eastern brothers call her in sleep. And the answer seemed so queer, so unevangelical, that she waited in silence till he slept again. The poetry passed her by. It seemed unnecessary and out of place. It made her ache with suspicion, fear, jealousy. The fear, however, seemed somehow all lapped up and banished soon afterwards by her unwilling admiration of the rushing splendour of her husband's state. Her anxiety, at any rate, shifted from the religious to the medical. She thought he might be losing his steadiness of mind a little. How often in her prayers she offered thanks for the guidance that had made her stay with him, to help and watch, is impossible to say. It certainly was twice a day. She even went so far once when Mr. Mortimer, the vicar, called and brought with him a more or less distinguished doctor as to tell the professional man privately some symptoms of her husband's queerness, and his answer that there was nothing he could prescribe for added not a little to her sense of unholy bewilderment. No doubt Sir James had never been consulted under such unorthodox conditions before. His sense of what was becoming naturally overrode his acquired instinct as a skilled instrument that might help the race. No fever, you think? she asked insistently with hurry, determined to get something from him. Nothing that I can deal with, as I told you, madam, replied the offended allopathic knight. Evidently he did not care about being invited to examine patients in this surreptitious way before a teapot on the lawn chance of a fee most problematical. He liked to see a tongue and feel a thumping pulse, to know the pedigree and bank account of his questioner as well. It was most unusual, in abominable taste besides, of course it was, but the drowning woman seized the only straw she could. For now the aggressive attitude of her husband overcame her to the point where she found it difficult even to question him. Yet in the house he was so kind and gentle, doing all he could to make her sacrifice as easy as possible. David, you really are unwise to go out now. The night is damp and very chilly. The ground is soaked in dew. You'll catch your death of cold. His face lightened. Won't you come with me, dear, just for once? I'm only going to the corner of the hollies to see the beach that stands so lonely by itself. She had been out with him in the short dark afternoon, and they had passed that evil group of hollies where the gypsies camped. Nothing else would grow there, but the hollies thrive upon the stony soil. David, the beach is all right and safe. She had learned his phraseology a little, made clever out of due season by her love. There's no wind tonight. But it's rising, he answered, rising in the east. I heard it in the bare and hungry larches. They need the sun and dew and always cry out when the wind's upon them from the east. She sent a short unspoken prayer most swiftly to her deity as she heard him say it. 
For every time now when he spoke in this familiar, intimate way of the life of the trees, she felt a sheet of cold fastened tight against her very skin and flesh. She shivered. How could he possibly know such things? Yet in all else, and in the relations of his daily life, he was sane and reasonable, loving, kind and tender. It was only on the subject of the trees he seemed unhinged and queer. Most curiously, it seemed that since the collapse of the cedar they both loved, though in different fashion, his departure from the normal had increased. Why else did he watch them as a man might watch a sickly child? Why did he hunger, especially in the dusk, to catch their mood of night, as he called it? Why think so carefully upon them when the frost was threatening or the wind appeared to rise? As she put it so frequently now herself, how could he possibly know such things? He went. As she closed the front door after him, she heard the distant roaring of the forest. And then it suddenly struck her. How could she know them too? It dropped upon her like a blow that she felt at once all over upon body, heart and mind. The discovery rushed out from its ambush to overwhelm. The truth of it, making all arguing futile, numbed her faculties. But though at first it deadened her, she soon revived, and her being rose into aggressive opposition, a wild yet calculated courage like that which animates the leaders of splendid forlorn hopes flamed in her little person, flamed grandly and invincible. While knowing herself insignificant and weak, she knew at the same time that power at her back which moves the worlds. The faith that filled her was the weapon in her hands and the right by which she claimed it, but the spirit of utter selfless sacrifice that characterized her life was the means by which she mastered its immediate use. For a kind of white and faultless intuition guided her to the attack. Behind her stood her Bible and her God. How so magnificent a divination came to her at all may well be a matter of astonishment, though some clue of explanation lies perhaps in the very simpleness of her nature, at any rate, she saw quite clearly certain things, saw them in moments only, after prayer, in the still silence of the night, or when left alone those long hours in the house with her knitting and her thoughts, and the guidance which then flashed into her remained, even after the manner of its coming was forgotten. There came to her these things she saw, formless, wordless. She could not put them into any kind of language but by the very fact of being uncaught in sentences, they retained their original clear vigour. Hours of patient waiting brought the first, and the others followed easily afterwards by degrees, on subsequent days a little and a little. Her husband had been gone since early morning, and had taken his luncheon with him. She was sitting by the tea-things, the cups and teapot warmed, the muffins in the fender keeping hot, all ready for his return, when she realised quite abruptly that this thing which took him off, which kept him out so many hours day after day, this thing that was against her own little will and instinct, was enormous as the sea. It was no mere prettiness of single trees, but something massed and mountainous. About her rose the wall of its huge opposition to the sky, its scale gigantic, its power utterly prodigious, what she knew of it hitherto as green and delicate forms waving and rustling in the winds was but 
as it were the spray of foam that broke into sight upon the nearer edge of viewless depths far, far away. The trees indeed were sentinels set visibly about the limits of a camp that itself remained invisible. The awful hum and murmur of the main body in the distance passed into that still room about her with the firelight and hissing kettle. Out yonder, in the forest, further out, the thing that was ever roaring at the centre was dreadfully increasing. The sense of definite battle, too, battle between herself and the forest for his soul, came with it. Its presentiment was as clear as though Thompson had come into the room and quietly told her that the cottage was surrounded. Please, ma'am, there are trees come up about the house, she might have suddenly announced, but equally might have heard her own answer. It's all right, Thompson, the main body is still far away. Immediately upon its heels then came another truth with a close reality that shocked her. She saw that jealousy was not confined to the human and animal world alone, but ran through all creation. The vegetable kingdom knew it too. So-called inanimate nature shared it with the rest. Trees felt it. This forest just beyond the window, standing there in the silence of the autumn evening across the little lawn, this forest understood it equally. The remorseless branching power that sought to keep exclusively for itself the thing it loved and needed spread like a running desire through all its million leaves and stems and roots. In humans, of course, it was consciously directed. In animals, it acted with frank instinctiveness. But in trees, this jealousy rose in some blind tide of impersonal and unconscious wrath that would sweep opposition from its path as the wind sweeps powdered snow from the surface of the ice. Their number was host with endless reinforcements, and once it realised its passion was returned, the power increased. Her husband loved the trees. They had become aware of it. They would take him from her in the end. Then, while she heard his footsteps in the hall and the closing of the front door, she saw a third thing clearly, realised the widening of the gap between herself and him. This other love had made it. All these weeks of the summer when she felt so close to him, now especially when she had made the biggest sacrifice of her life to stay by his side and help him, he had been slowly, surely drawing away. The estrangement was here and now, a fact accomplished. It had been all this time maturing. They yawned this broad, deep space between them. Across the empty distance, she saw the change in merciless perspective. It revealed his face and figure, dearly loved, once fondly worshipped, far on the other side in shadowy distance, small, the back turned from her, and moving while she watched, moving away from her. They had their tea in silence then, she asked no questions, he volunteered no information of his day. The heart was big within her, and the terrible loneliness of age spread through her like a rising icy mist. She watched him, filling all his wants. His hair was untidy and his boots were caked with blackish mud. He moved with a restless swaying motion that somehow blanched her cheek and sent her miserable shivering down her back. It reminded her of trees. His eyes were very bright. 
He brought in with him an odour of the earth and forest that seemed to choke her and make it difficult to breathe, and what she noticed with a climax of almost uncontrollable alarm, upon his face beneath the lamplight shone traces of mild, faint glory that made her think of moonlight falling upon a wood through speckled shadows. It was his newfound happiness that shone there, a happiness uncaused by her, and in which she had no part. In his coat was a spray of faded yellow beech leaves. I brought this from the forest to you, he said, with all the air that belonged to his little acts of devotion long ago. And she took the spray of leaves mechanically with a smile and murmured, Thank you, dear, as though he had unknowingly put into her hands the weapon for her own destruction, and she had accepted it. And when the tea was over and he left the room, he did not go to his study or to change clothes. She heard the front door softly shut behind him as he went again out towards the forest. A moment later, she was in her room upstairs, kneeling beside the bed the side she slept on, and praying wildly through a flood of tears that God would save and keep him to her. Wind brushed the window panes behind her while she knelt. 8. One sunny November morning, when the strain had reached a pitch that made repression almost unmanageable, she came to an impulsive decision and obeyed it. Her husband had again gone out with luncheon for the day. She took adventure in her hands and followed him. The power of seeing clear was strong upon her, forcing her up to some unnatural level of understanding. To stay indoors and wait inactive for his return seemed suddenly impossible. She meant to know what he knew, feel what he felt, put herself in his place. She would dare the fascination of the forest, share it with him. It was greatly daring but it would give her greater understanding how to help him and save him, and therefore greater power. She went upstairs a moment first to pray. In a thick warm skirt and wearing heavy boots, those walking boots she used with him upon the mountains about Ceylon, she left the cottage by the back way and turned towards the forest. She could not actually follow him, for he had started off an hour before and she knew not exactly his direction. What was so urgent in her was the wish to be with him in the woods, to walk beneath leafless branches just as he did, to be there when he was there, even though they were not together. For it had come to her that she might thus share with him for once this horrible mighty life and breathing of the trees he loved. In winter, he had said, they needed him particularly, and winter now was coming. Her love must bring her something of what he felt himself, the huge attraction the suction and the pull of all the trees. Thus, in some vicarious fashion, she might even share, though unknown to herself, this very little thing that was taking him away from her. She might thus even lessen its attack upon himself. The impulse came to her clairvoyantly, and she obeyed without a sign of hesitation. Deeper comprehension would come to her of the whole awful puzzle, and come it did, yet not in the way she imagined and expected. The air was very still, the sky a cold pale blue but cloudless. The entire forest stood silent at attention. It knew perfectly well that she had come. It knew the moment when she entered, watched and followed her, and behind her something dropped without a sound and shut her in. 
Her feet upon the glades of mossy grass felt silently, as the oaks and beeches shifted past in rows and took up their positions at her back. It was not pleasant, this way they grew so dense behind her the instant she had passed. She realized that they gathered in an ever-growing army, massed, herded, trooped, between her and the cottage, shutting off escape. They let her pass so easily, but to get out again, she would know them differently, thick, crowded branches all drawn and hostile. Already their increasing numbers bewildered her. In front they looked so sparse and scattered with open spaces where the sunshine fell, but when she turned it seemed they stood so close together, a serried army, darkening the sunlight. They blocked the day, collected all the shadows, stood with their leafless and forbidding rampart like night. They swallowed down into themselves the very glade by which she came, but when she glanced behind her, rarely, the way she had come was shadowy and lost. Yet the morning sparkled overhead, and a glance of excitement ran quivering through the entire day. It was what she always knew as children's weather, so clear and harmless without a sign of danger, nothing ominous to threaten or alarm. Steadfast in her purpose, looking back as little as she dared, Sophia Bittacy marched slowly and deliberately into the heart of the silent woods, deeper, ever deeper. And then, abruptly, in an open space where the sunshine fell unhindered, she stopped. It was one of the breathing places of the forest. Dead, withered bracken lay in patches of unsightly grey. There were bits of heather, too. All round the trees stood looking on, oak, beech, holly, ash, pine, larch, and here and there small groups of juniper. On the lips of this breathing space of the wood she stopped to rest, disobeying her instinct for the first time, for the other instinct in her was to go on. She did not really want to rest. This was the little act that brought it to her, the wireless message from a vast emitter. I've been stopped, she thought to herself with a horrid qualm. She looked about her in this quiet, ancient place. Nothing stirred. There was no life nor sign of life. No birds sang. No rabbits scuttled off at her approach. The stillness was bewildering, and gravity hung down upon it like a heavy curtain. It hushed the heart in her. Could this be part of what her husband felt, this sense of thick entanglement with stems, boughs, roots, and foliage? This has always been as it is now, she thought, and yet not knowing why she thought it. Ever since the forest grew, it has been still and secret here. It has never changed. The curtain of silence drew closer while she said it, thickening round her. For a thousand years, I'm here with a thousand years, and behind this place stand all the forests of the world. So foreign to her temperament were such thoughts, and so alien to all she had been taught to look for in nature, that she strove against them. She made an effort to oppose, but they clung and haunted just the same. They refused to be dispersed. The curtain hung dense and heavy as though its texture thickened. The air with difficulty came through. And then she thought that curtain stirred. There was movement somewhere. That obscure dim thing which ever broods behind the visible appearances of trees came nearer to her. She caught her breath and stared about her, listening intently. 
The trees, perhaps she saw them more in detail now, it seemed to her had changed. A vague, faint alliteration spread over them, at first so slight she scarcely would admit it, then growing steadily, though still obscurely, outwards. They tremble, and are changed, flashed through her mind the horrid line that Sanderson had quoted, yet the change was graceful for all the uncouthness attendant upon the size of so vast a movement. They had turned in her direction. That was it. They saw her. In this way, the change expressed itself in her groping, terrified thought. Till now it had been otherwise. She had looked at them from her own point of view. Now they looked at her from theirs. They stared her in the face and eyes. They stared at her all over. In some unkind, resentful, hostile way, they watched her. Hitherto in life she had watched them variously, in superficial ways, reading into them what her own mind suggested. Now they read into her the things they actually were, and not merely another's interpretations of them. They seemed in their motionless silence their instinct with life, a life, moreover, that breathed about her a species of terrible soft enchantment that bewitched it branched all through her, climbing to the brain. The forest held her with its huge and giant fascination. In this secluded breathing spot that the centuries had left untouched, she had stepped close against the hidden pulse of the whole collective mass of them. They were aware of her, and had turned to gaze with their myriad vast sight upon the intruder. They shouted at her in the silence. For she wanted to look back at them, but it was like staring at a crowd, and her glance merely shifted from one tree to another, hurriedly, finding in none the one she sought. They saw her so easily, each and all. The rose that stood behind her also stared, but she could not return the gaze. Her husband, she realised, could, and their steady stare shocked her, as though in some sense she knew that she was naked. They saw so much of her, she saw of them, so little. Her efforts to return their gaze were pitiful. The constant shifting increased her bewilderment. Conscious of this awful and enormous sight all over her, she let her eyes first rest upon the ground, and then she closed them altogether. She kept the lids as tight together as ever they would go. But the sight of the trees came even into that inner darkness behind the fastened lids, for there was no escaping it. Outside in the light she still knew that the leaves of the hollies glittered smoothly, that the dead foliage of the oaks hung crisp in the air about her, that the needles of the little junipers were pointing all one way. The spread perception of the forest was focused on herself, and no mere shutting of the eyes could hide its scattered yet concentrated stare, the all-inclusive vision of the great woods. There was no wind, yet here and there a single leaf hanging by its dried-up stalk shook all alone with great rapidity, rattling. It was the sentry drawing attention to her presence. And then again, as once... Long weeks before she felt their being as a tide about her. The tide had turned. That memory of her childhood sands came back when the nurse said, The tide has turned now. We must go in. And she saw the mass of piled-up waters green and heaped to the horizon, 
and realized that it was slowly coming in. The gigantic mass of it, too vast for hurry, loaded with massive purpose, she used to feel, was moving towards herself. The fluid body of the sea was creeping along beneath the sky to the very spot upon the yellow sands where she stood and played. The sight and thought of it had always overwhelmed her with a sense of awe, as though her puny self were the object of the whole sea's advance. The tide has turned. We had better now go in. This was happening now about her. The same thing was happening in the woods, slow, sure and steady, and its motion as little discernible as the seas. The tide had turned. The small human presence that had ventured among its green and mountainous depths, moreover, was its objective. That all was clear within her while she sat and waited with tight-shut lids. But the next moment she opened her eyes with a sudden realization of something more. The presence that it sought was, after all, not hers. It was the presence of someone other than herself. And then she understood. Her eyes had opened with a click, it seemed, but the sound in reality was outside herself. Across the clearing, where the sunshine lay so calm and still, she saw the figure of her husband moving among the trees, a man like a tree, walking. With hands behind his back and head uplifted, he moved quite slowly, as though absorbed in his own thoughts. Hardly fifty paces separated them, but he had no inkling of her presence there so near. With mind intent and senses all turned inwards, he marched past her like a figure in a dream, and like a figure in a dream she saw him go. Love, yearning, pity rose in a storm within her, but as in nightmare she found no words or movement possible. She sat and watched him go, go from her, go into the deeper reaches of the green enveloping woods. Desire to save to bid him stop and turn ran in a passion through her being, but there was nothing she could do. She saw him go away from her, go of his own accord and willingly beyond her. She saw the branches drop about his steps and hide him. His figure faded out among the speckled shade and sunlight, the trees covered him. The tide just took him, all unresisting and content to go. Upon the bosom of the green soft sea he floated away beyond her reach of vision. Her eyes could follow him no longer. He was gone. And then, for the first time she realized, even at that distance, that the look upon his face was one of peace and happiness, wrapped and caught away in joy, a look of youth. That expression now he never showed to her. But she had known it, years ago. In the early days of their married life she had seen it on his face. Now it no longer obeyed the summons of her presence and her love. The woods alone could call it forth. It answered to the trees. The forest had taken every part of him from her, his very heart and soul. Her sight that had plunged inwards to the fields of faded memory now came back to outer things again. She looked about her, and her love returning empty-handed and unsatisfied left her open to the invading of the bleakest terror she had ever known. That such things could be real and happen found her helpless utterly. Terror invaded the quietest corners of her heart that had never yet known quailing. She could not, for moments at any rate, reach either her Bible or her God. Desolate, in an empty world of fear, she sat with eyes too dry and hot for tears, 
yet with a coldness as of ice upon her very flesh. She stared unseeing about her, the horror which stalks in the stillness of the noonday when the glare of an artificial sunshine lights up the motionless trees moved all about her. In front and behind she was aware of it. Beyond this stealthy silence, just within the edge of it, the things of another world were passing. But she could not know them. Her husband knew them, knew their beauty and their awe, yes. But for her, they were out of reach. She might not share with him the very least of them. It seemed that behind and through the glare of this wintry noonday in the heart of the woods, there brooded another universe of life and passion, for her all unexpressed. The silence veiled it, the stillness hid it, but he moved with it all and understood. His love interpreted it. She rose to her feet, tottered feebly, and collapsed again upon the moss. Yet for herself she felt no terror, no little personal fear could touch her, whose anguish and deep longing streamed all out to him whom she so bravely loved. In this time of utter self-forgetfulness, when she realized that the battle was hopeless, thinking she had lost even her god, she found him again quite close beside her, like a little presence in this terrible heart of the hostile forest. But at first she did not recognize that he was there. She did not know him in that strangely unacceptable guise, for he stood so very close, so very intimate, so very sweet and comforting, and yet so hard to understand, as resignation. Once more she struggled to her feet, and this time turned successfully and slowly made her way along the mossy glade by which she came, and at first she marvelled, though only for a moment, at the ease with which she found the path, for a moment only, because almost at once she saw the truth. The trees were glad that she should go. They helped her on her way. The forest didn't want her. The tide was coming in indeed, yet not for her. And so, in another of those flashes of clear vision that of late had lifted life above the normal level, she saw and understood the whole terrible thing complete. Till now, though unexpressed in thought or language, her fear had been that the woods her husband loved would somehow take him from her, to merge his life in theirs, even to kill him on some mysterious way. This time she saw her deep mistake, and so seeing, let in upon herself the fuller agony of horror, for their jealousy was not the petty jealousy of animals or humans. They wanted him, because they loved him, but they did not want him dead. Full charged with his splendid life and enthusiasm they wanted him. They wanted him alive. It was she who stood in their way, and it was she whom they intended to remove. This was what brought the sense of abject helplessness. She stood upon the sands against an entire ocean slowly rolling in against her. For as all the forces of a human being combine unconsciously to eject a grain of sand that has crept beneath the skin to cause discomfort, so the entire mass of what Sanderson had called the collective consciousness of the forest strove to eject this human atom that stood across the path of its desire. Loving her husband, she had crept beneath his skin. It was her they would eject and take away. It was her they would destroy, not him. 
Him whom they loved and needed, they would keep alive. They meant to take him living. She reached the house in safety, though she never remembered how she found her way. It was made all simple for her. The branches almost urged her out. But behind her, as she left the shadowed precincts, she felt as though some towering angel of the woods let fall across the threshold the flaming sword of a countless multitude of leaves that formed behind her a barrier green, shimmering, and impassable. Into the forest she never walked again. And she went about her daily duties with a calm and quietness that was a perpetual astonishment even to herself, for it hardly seemed of this world at all. She talked to her husband when he came in for tea after dark. Resignation brings a curious large courage when there is nothing more to lose. The soul takes risks and dares. Is it a curious shortcut sometimes to the heights? David, I went into the forest too, this morning. Soon after you, I went. I saw you there. Wasn't it wonderful? He answered simply, inclining his head a little. There was no surprise or annoyance in his look, a mild and gentle ennui, rather. He asked no real question. She thought of some garden tree the wind attacks too suddenly, bending it over when it does not want to bend, the mild unwillingness with which it yields. She often saw him this way now, in the terms of trees. It was very wonderful indeed, dear, yes, she replied low, her voice not faltering, though indistinct. But for me... It was too, too strange and big. The passion of tears lay just below the quiet voice, all unbetrayed. Somehow she kept them back. There was a pause, and then he added, I find it more and more so every day. His voice passed through the lamplit room like a murmur of the wind in branches. The look of youth and happiness she had caught upon his face out there had wholly gone, and an expression of weariness was in its place as of a man distressed vaguely at finding himself in uncongenial surroundings where he slightly lit ease. It was the house he hated, coming back to rooms and walls and furniture. The ceilings and closed windows confined him, yet in it no suggestion that he found her irksome. Her presence seemed of no account at all. Indeed, he hardly noticed her. For whole long periods he lost her, did not know that she was there, he had no need of her. He lived alone. Each lived alone. The outward signs by which she recognized that the awful battle was against her and that the terms of surrender accepted were pathetic. She put the medicine chest away upon the shelf. She gave the orders for his pocket luncheon before he asked. She went to bed alone and early, leaving the front door unlocked with milk and bread and butter in the hall beside the lamp, all concessions that she felt impelled to make. For more and more, unless the weather was too violent, he went out after dinner even, staying for hours in the woods. But she never slept until she heard the front door close below, and knew soon afterwards his careful step come creeping up the stairs and into the room so softly, until she heard his regular deep breathing close beside her she lay awake. All strength or desire to resist had gone for good. The thing against her was too huge and powerful. Capitulation was complete, a fact accomplished. She dated it from the day she followed him to the forest. Moreover, the time for evacuation, her own evacuation, seemed approaching. 
it came stealthily ever nearer. Surely and slowly as the rising tide she used to dread. At the high water mark she stood waiting calmly, waiting to be swept away. Across the lawn, all those terrible days of early winter, the encircling forest watched it come, guiding its silent swell and currents towards her feet. Only she never once gave up her Bible or her praying. This complete resignation, moreover, had somehow brought to her a strange, great understanding, and if she could not share her husband's horrible abandonment to powers outside himself, she could and did in some half-groping way, grasp at shadowy meanings that might make such abandonment possible, yet but more than merely possible, in some extraordinary sense not evil. Hitherto she had divided the beyond world into two sharp halves, spirits good or spirits evil, but thoughts came to her now on soft and very tentative feet, like the footsteps of the gods which are on wool, that besides these definite classes there might be other powers as well, belonging definitely to neither one nor other. Her thoughts stopped dead at that, but the big idea found lodgment in her little mind, and owing to the largeness of her heart remained there unejected. It even brought a certain solace with it. The failure or unwillingness, as she preferred to state it, of her God to interfere and help, that also she came in measure to understand. For here she found it more and more possible to imagine was perhaps no positive evil at work, but only something that usually stands away from humankind, something alien and not commonly recognised. There was a gulf fixed between the two, and Mr. Sanderson had bridged it by his talk, his explanations, his attitude of mind. Through these, her husband had found the way into it, his temperament and natural passion for the woods had prepared the soul in him, and the moment he saw the way to go he took it, the line of least resistance. Life was, of course, open to all, and her husband had the right to choose it where he would. He had chosen it, away from her, away from other men, but not necessarily away from God. This was an enormous concession that she skirted, never really faced. It was too revolutionary to face but its possibility peeped into her bewildered mind. It might delay his progress, or it might advance it. Who could know? And why should God, who ordered all things with such magnificent detail, from the pathway of a sun to the falling of a sparrow, object to his free choice, or interfere to hinder him and stop? She came to realise resignation, that is, in another aspect. It gave her comfort, if not peace. She fought against all belittling of her God. It was perhaps enough that he knew. You're not alone, dear, in the trees out there, she ventured one night as he crept on tiptoe into the room not far from midnight. God is with you? Magnificently was the immediate answer given with enthusiasm, for he is everywhere, and, and I only wish that you... But she stuffed the clothes against her ears. That invitation on his lips was more than she could bear to hear. It seemed like asking her to hurry to her own execution. She buried her face among the sheets and blankets, shaking all over like a leaf. 9. And so the thought that she was the one to go remained and grew. 
It was perhaps first sign of that weakening of the mind which indicated the singular manner of her going, for it was her mental opposition the trees felt that stood in their way. Once that was overcome, obliterated, her physical presence didn't matter. She would be harmless. Having accepted defeat because she had come to feel that his obsession was not actually evil, she accepted at the same time the conditions of an atrocious loneliness. She stood now from her husband farther than from the moon. They had no visitors. Callers were few and far between, and less encouraged than before. The empty dark of winter was before them. Among the neighbours was none in whom, without disloyalty to her husband, she could confide. Mr. Mortimer, had he been single, might have helped her in this desert of solitude that preyed upon her mind. But his wife was there the obstacle, for Mrs. Mortimer wore sandals, believed that nuts were the complete food of man, and indulged in other idiosyncrasies that classed her inevitably among the latter signs which Mrs. Bittersey had been taught to dread as dangerous. She stood most desolately alone. Solitude, therefore, in which the mind unhindered feeds upon its own delusions, was the assignable cause of her gradual mental disruption and collapse. With the definite arrival of the colder weather, her husband gave up his rambles after dark, evenings were spent together over the fire, he read the times, they even talked about their postponed visit abroad in the coming spring. No restlessness was on him at the change. He seemed content and easy in his mind, spoke little of the trees and woods, enjoyed far better health than if there had been change of scene, and to herself was tender, kind, solicitous over trifles as in the distant days of their first honeymoon. But this deep calm could not deceive her. It meant she fully understood that he felt sure of himself, sure of her, and sure of the trees as well. It all lay buried in the depths of him, too secure and deep, too intimately established in his central being to permit of those surface fluctuations which betrayed this harmony within. His life was hid with trees. Even the fever so dreaded in the damp of winter left him free. She now knew why. The fever was due to their efforts to obtain him, his efforts to respond and go, physical results of a fierce unrest he had never understood till Sanderson came with his wicked explanations. Now it was otherwise. The bridge was made, and he had gone. And she, brave, loyal, and consistent soul, found herself utterly alone, even trying to make his passage easy. It seemed that she stood at the bottom of some huge ravine that opened in her mind, the walls whereof, instead of rock, were trees that reached enormous to the sky, engulfing her. God alone knew that she was there. He watched, permitted, even perhaps approved. At any rate, he knew. During those quiet evenings in the house, moreover, while they sat over the fire listening to the roaming winds about the house, her husband knew continual access to the world his alien love had furnished for him. Never for a single instant was he cut off from it. She gazed at the newspaper spread before his face and knees, saw the smoke of his cheroot curl up above the edge, noticed a little hole in his evening socks, and listened to the paragraphs he read out as of old. But this was all a veil he spread about him on purpose. Behind it he escaped. 
It was the conjurer's trick to divert the sight to unimportant details while the essential thing went forward unobserved. He managed wonderfully. She loved him for the pains he took to spare her distress, but all the while she knew that the body lolling in that armchair before her eyes contained the merest fragment of his actual self. It was little better than a corpse. It was an empty shell. The essential soul of him was out yonder with the forest, farther out, near that ever-roaring heart of it. And with the dark the forest came up boldly and pressed against the very walls and windows, peering in upon them, joining hands above the slates and chimneys. The winds were always walking on the lawn and gravel paths. Steps came and went and came again. Someone always seemed talking in the woods. Someone was in the building, too. She passed them on the stairs, or running soft and muffled, very large and gentle down the passages and landings after dusk, as though loose fragments of the day had broken off and stayed there caught among the shadows trying to get out. They blundered silently all about the house. They waited till she passed, then made a run for it, and her husband always knew. She saw him more than once deliberately avoid them because she was there. More than once, too, she saw him stand and listen when he thought she was not near, then heard herself the long-bounding stride of their approach across the silent garden. Already he had heard them in the windy distance of the night far away. They sped, she well knew, along that glade of mossy turf by which she last came out. It cushioned their tread exactly as it had cushioned her own. It seemed to her that the trees were always in the house with him, and in their very bedroom. He welcomed them, unaware that she also knew, and trembled. One night in her bedroom it caught her unawares. She woke out of a deep sleep, and it came upon her before she could gather her forces for control. The day had been wildly boisterous, but now the wind had dropped, only its rags went fluttering through the night. The rays of the full moon fell in a shower between the branches. Overhead still raced the scud and rack shaped like hurrying monsters, but below the earth was quiet. Still and dripping stood the hosts of trees. Their trunks gleamed wet and sparkling where the moon caught them. There was a strong smell of mould and fallen leaves. The air was sharp, heavy with odour. And she knew all this the instant that she awoke, for it seemed to her that she had been elsewhere, following her husband as though she had been out. There was no dream at all, merely the definite, haunting certainty. It dived away, lost, buried in the night. She sat upright in bed. She had come back. The room shone pale in the moonlight reflected through the windows, for the blinds were up, and she saw her husband's form beside her, motionless in deep sleep. But what caught her unawares was the horrid thing that by this fact of sudden unexpected waking she had surprised these other things in the room, beside the very bed gathered close about him while he slept. It was their dreadful boldness, herself of no account as it were, that terrified her into screaming before she could collect her powers to prevent. She screamed before she realised what she did, a long high shriek of terror that filled the room yet made so little actual sound, for wet and shimmering presences stood grouped all around the bed. She saw their outline underneath the ceiling, the green spread bulk of them, their vague extension over walls and furniture, 
They shifted to and fro, massed yet translucent, mild yet thick, moving and turning within themselves to a hushed noise of multitudinous soft rustling. In their sound was something very sweet and sinning that fell into her with a spell of horrible enchantment. It was so mild, each one alone yet so terrific in their combination. Cold seized her. The sheets against her body had turned to ice. She screamed a second time, though the sound hardly issued from her throat. The spell sank deeper, reaching to the heart, for it softened all the currents of her blood and took life from her in a stream towards themselves. Resistance in that moment seemed impossible. Her husband then stirred in his sleep and woke, and instantly the forms drew up, erect, and gathered themselves in some amazing way together. They lessened in extent, then scattered through the air like an effect of light when shadows seek to smother it. It was tremendous, yet most exquisite. A sheet of pale green shadow that yet had form and substance filled the room. There was a rush of silent movement as the presences drew past her through the air, and they were gone. But clearest of all, she saw the manner of their going, for she recognised in that tumult of escape by the window opened at the top the same wide looping circles, spirals as it seemed, that she had seen upon the lawn those weeks ago when Sanderson had talked. The room, once more, was empty. In the collapse that followed, she heard her husband's voice as though coming from some great distance. Her own reply she heard as well. Both were so strange and unlike their normal speech, the very words unnatural. What is it, dear? Why did you wake me now? And his voice whispered as if with a sighing sound like wind in pine boughs. A moment since, something went past me through the air of the room. Back to the night outside it went. Her voice, too, held the same note as of wind entangled among too many leaves. My dear, it was the wind. But it called David. It was calling you by name. The air of the branches, dear, was what you heard. Now sleep again, I beg you, sleep. It had a crowd of eyes all through and over it, before and behind. A voice grew louder, but his own in reply sank lower, far away and oddly hushed. The moonlight, dear, upon the sea of twigs and boughs in the rain was what you saw. But it frightened me. I've lost my God. And you? I'm cold as death. My dear, it is the cold of the early morning hours. The whole world sleeps. Now sleep again yourself. He whispered close to her ear. She felt his hand stroking her. His voice was soft and very soothing, but only a part of him was there, only a part of him was speaking. It was a half-emptied body that lay beside her and uttered these strange sentences, even forcing her own singular choice of words. The horrible dim enchantment of the trees was close about them in the room, gnarled, ancient, lonely trees of winter, whispering around the human life they loved. And let me sleep again, she heard him murmur as he settled down among the clothes. Sleep back into that deep, delicious peace from which you called me. His dreamy happy tone and that look of youth and joy she discerned upon his features, even in the filtered moonlight, touched her again, as with the spell of those shining, mild, green presences. It sank down into her. She felt sleep grope for her, on the threshold of slumber, one of those strange, vagrant voices that loss of consciousness lets loose cried faintly in her heart. There is joy in the forest over one sinner that... Then sleep took her, 
before she had time to realize even that she was vilely parodying one of her most precious texts, and that the irreverence was ghastly. And though she quickly slept again, her sleep was not as usual dreamless. It was not woods and trees she dreamed of, but a small and curious dream that kept coming again and again upon her, that she stood upon a wee bare rock in the sea, and that the tide was rising. The water first came to her feet, then to her knees, then to her waist. Each time the dream returned, the tide seemed higher. Once it rose to her neck, once even to her mouth, covering her lips for a moment so that she could not breathe. She did not wake between the dreams. A period of drab and dreamless slumber intervened, but finally the water rose above her eyes and face completely, covering her head. And then came explanation, the sort of explanation that dreams bring. She understood, for beneath the water she had seen the world of seaweed rising from the bottom of the sea like a forest of dense green, long sinuous stems, immense thick branches, millions of feelers spreading through the darkened watery depths the power of their ocean foliage. The vegetable kingdom was even in the sea, it was everywhere, earth, air and water helped it, way of escape, there was none. And even underneath the sea she heard that terrible sound of roaring, was it surf or wind or voices, further out, yet coming steadily towards her? And so, in the loneliness of that drab English winter, the mind of Mrs. Bittersey preying upon itself and fed by constant dread went lost in disproportion. Dreariness filled the weeks with dismal sunless skies and a clinging moisture that knew no wholesome tonic of keen frosts. Alone with her thoughts, both her husband and her God, withdrawn into distance, she counted the days to spring. She groped her way, stumbling down the long, dark tunnel. Through the arch at the far end lay a brilliant picture of the violet sea sparkled on the coast of France. There lay safety and escape for both of them, could she but hold on. Behind her, the trees blocked up the other entrance. She never once looked back. She drooped. Vitality passed from her, drawn out and away as by some steady suction, Immense and incessant was this sensation of her powers draining off. The taps were all turned on. Her personality, as it were, streamed steadily away, coaxed outwards by this power that never wearied and seemed inexhaustible. It won her as the full moon wins the tide. She waned. She faded. She obeyed. At first she watched the process and recognized exactly what was going on. Her physical life, and that balance of mind which depends on physical well-being were being slowly undermined. She saw that clearly. Only the soul dwelling like a star apart from these, and independent of them, lay safe somewhere with her distant God. That she knew tranquilly. The spiritual love that linked her to her husband was safe from all attack. Later, in his good time, they would merge together again because of it. Meanwhile, all of her that had kinship with the earth was slowly going. This separation was being remorselessly accomplished. Every part of her the trees could touch was being steadily drained from her. She was being removed. After a time, however, even this power of realization went, so that she no longer watched the process or knew exactly what was going on. The one satisfaction she had known, 
The feeling that it was sweet to suffer for his sake went with it. She stood utterly alone in this terror of the trees, mid the ruins of her broken and disordered mind. She slept badly, woke in the morning with hot and tired eyes, her head ached dully, she grew confused in thought and lost the clues of daily life in the most feeble fashion. At the same time she lost sight, too, of that brilliant picture at the exit of the tunnel. It faded away into a tiny semicircle of pale light, the violet sea and the sunshine the merest point of white, remote as a star and equally inaccessible. She knew now that she could never reach it. And through the darkness that stretched behind, the power of the trees came close and caught her, twining about her feet and arms, climbing to her very lips. She woke at night, finding it difficult to breathe. There seemed wet leaves pressing against her mouth and soft green tendrils clinging to her neck. Her feet were heavy, half-rooted as it were in deep, thick earth. Huge creepers stretched along the whole of that black tunnel, feeling about her person for points where they may fasten well, as ivy or the giant parasites of the vegetable kingdom settle down on the trees themselves to sap their life and kill them. Slowly and surely the morbid growth possessed her life and held her. She feared those very winds that ran about the wintry forest. They were in league with it. They helped it everywhere. Why don't you sleep, dear? It was her husband now who played the role of nurse, tending her little wants with an honest care that at least aped the services of love. He was so utterly unconscious of the raging battle he had caused. What is it keeps you so wide awake and restless? The winds, she whispered in the dark. For hours she had been watching the tossing of the trees through the blindless windows. They go walking and talking everywhere tonight, keeping me awake and all the time. They call so loudly to you and his strange whispered answer appalled her for a moment until the meaning of it faded and left her in a dark confusion of the mind that was now becoming almost permanent. The trees excite them in the night. The winds are great swift carriers. Go with them, dear, and not against. You'll find sleep that way if you do. The storm is rising, she began, hardly knowing what she said. All the more, then, go with them. Don't resist. They'll take you to the trees, that's all. Resist. The word touched on the button of some text that had once helped her. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, she heard her whispered answer, and the same second had buried her face beneath the clothes in a flood of hysterical weeping. But her husband didn't seem disturbed. Perhaps he didn't hear it, for the wind ran just then against the windows with a booming shout, and the roaring of the forest farther out came behind the blow surging into the room. Perhaps, too, he was already asleep again. She slowly regained a sort of dull composure. Her face emerged from the tangle of sheets and blankets. With a growing terror over her, she listened. The storm was rising. It came with a sudden and impetuous rush that made all further sleep for her impossible. Alone in a shaking world, it seemed, she lay and listened. The storm interpreted for her mind the climax. The forest bellowed out its victory to the winds. The winds in turn proclaimed it to the night. The whole world knew of her complete defeat, her loss, her little human pain. This was the roar and shout of victory that she listened to. 
for unmistakably the trees were shouting in the dark. These were sounds too like the flapping of great sails a thousand at a time and sometimes reports that resembled more than anything else the distant booming of enormous drums. The trees stood up. The whole beleaguering host of them stood up and with the uproar of their million branches drummed the thundering message out across the night. It seemed as if they had all broken loose. Their roots swept trailing over field and hedge and roof. They tossed their bushy heads beneath the clouds with a wild, delighted shuffling of great boughs. With trunks upright they raced, leaping through the sky. There was upheaval and adventure in the awful sound they made, and their cry was like the cry of the sea that has broken through its gates and poured loose upon the world. Through it all, her husband slept peacefully as though he heard it not. It was, as she well knew, the sleep of the semi-dead, for he was out with all that clamouring turmoil. The part of him that she had lost was there. The form that slept so calmly at her side was but the shell half-emptied. And when the winter's morning stole upon the scene at length, with a pale washed sunshine that followed the departing tempest, the first thing she saw as she crept to the window and looked out was the ruined cedar lying on the lawn. Only the gaunt and crippled trunk of it remained. The single giant bough that had been left to it lay dark upon the grass, sucked endways towards the forest by a great wind eddy. It lay there, like a mass of driftwood from a wreck left by the ebbing of a high spring tide upon the sands, remnant of some friendly, splendid vessel that once sheltered men. And in the distance she heard the roaring of the forest further out. Her husband's voice was with it. Hi, this is Tony Walker. I would like to remind you that you can become a patron of the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. Patrons get access to the library of member-only stories, and I'm doing a new member-only story at least once per month at the moment. You'll also get the joy of supporting me in the work so I can continue to produce the regular podcast. You can become a patron by signing up at www.patreon.com forward slash Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. So if you did feel that you wanted to support my work, it would be great to have you on board at Patreon. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You Algernon Blackwood and The Man Whom the Trees Loved. This was actually suggested by a number of people. Um, but I did a bit of a trade-off with one of my very lovely patrons, Christian Jones, who wanted me to do an Algernon Blackwood, particularly The Willows. And we kind of, and he, because he's a patron, he gets the power to say, you do this, Tony Walker. And so I was like, well, yeah, okay. See, thing is the willows, I quite like the willows, and, and but it's being done by loads of people. The other one, the Wendigo, which is another of Blackwood's very famous ones. It's got all sorts of kind of references, which are uncomfortable now to, to well, First Nations people, because it's in Canada, and um 
French people and uh, Scottish people. And it's just the casual kind of things that people used to say, which people don't take them as well now. You know, we when we were kids, we used to say things which were absolutely appalling, which I wouldn't, I, I would cringe now to say, use words that I would say. Things change. So anyway, we came to a bit of a deal that we would do this one. Also, um, it was suggested by another of my very kind listeners on YouTube uh, was that uh, this has never been done. There, there is no audiobook of this. So I thought it was a good thing. It's quite long, two hours, 50 minutes. Let me. We've done some of Algernon and Blackwood's before. We've done The Empty House, which is a haunted house story. And we have done like, one of his Christmas stories. Well, it's set at Christmas. It's not particularly Christmassy. The Kit Bag. And then this is really technically a novella, I think, rather than a short story, because it's quite long. As you see, it's come in just nearly three hours. Blackwood himself was born in 1869 in Kent, and he lived to the grand old age of 82, and he had a very, you know, fantastic career. He was he was a very outdoorsy guy, and he spent a lot of time in Canada, and he liked mountain climbing and skiing and up, going up strange wildernessy places. But he was also very interested in the occult, and he was a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And so you can see both of those actually interested in this story. He was very interested in woods and forests and being in the forests. And the Wendigo is set in a huge forest as well. The Willows is about willow trees. So there's that. And then there's this mystical kind of thing, you know, the life of the trees. Uh, he, he did a load of things. I think he was a boxer at some point. That may have come, but he was certainly a broadcaster. So by the end of his life, he actually managed to be on TV. So he's a very prolific guy. And... The more I read this story, because of course I, I read it and then I narrate it and then I edit it, so I, I become relatively familiar with the story. I wouldn't say I'm an expert by any manner of means, but I liked it and uh, I grew to admire it more. It's a lovely structure. It just builds very slowly. The painter comes in at the beginning and he's the catalyst for this um, love that's in Mr. Bittersey's heart. Mr. Bittersey's always, you know, it kept going away. And, and I think the real nature of this story is, I mean, there's a pantheistic thing about the universe being alive and the trees having intention and consciousness of a different kind of ours. And that is very interesting. And that ties in with Blackwood's views, uh, his um, theosophic views, theosophy, things like that, Rosicrucianism, and basically that kind of general undercurrent of Western thought, which I sometimes talk about, which I'm quite interested in, which is a sort of um, a pantheistic belief that he says it's not pantheistic in the uh, in the um, in the story when Mr. Bittacy is talking to Mrs. Bittacy. I think it was also interesting that Mrs. Bittacy has these um, evangelical views, which which were probably very common then, and are not very common really in England now, though they may be in other places such as the USA and certain parts of the USA, but they, they're not very common now. And um, so that was kind of a period piece, I think. I think the real story is about their relationship. This is a man who who's, who who cares about his wife and loves her in his way, but he's really, his real love is for the trees. And I wonder, you've got to be really careful now, but I wonder if that is, certainly me, I have... I care about a lot of people, you know, but when I get involved in my projects, I am a monomaniac, really. Um, well, I'm not. I'm a, a pluralistic maniac. I do a load of pro projects at the same time, but um, they kind of consume me. And now today I've got loads of tasks I need to do, but there we are. So I think it's about their relationship, and I think also that it's something about madness. In the end, so we're led to believe that actually this is a real kind of a cult phenomenon, 
that the trees are reaching out. And then by the end, we think, oh, okay, was Mrs. Bittersea just going a bit crazy? You know, was this kind of paranoid, psychotic ideation, which perhaps, you know, she is quite an anxious woman. And um, her security is her husband. And her husband's focus has drifted off her, you know, and gone back to the trees. He doesn't seem to see much occult in it. So again, it's one of those ambiguous things. I don't think it is completely decided whether this is an occult story or the story of um, a relationship and a, and, a, and a mental breakdown by the end. So I liked it. Um, I'm not going to ramble on too long. I'm just busy as always. Um, I'm kind of trying to debate what I can cut down on, and it's probably going to be my 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 real job. I have about, I would say, about three or four jobs at the moment. Uh, one three days a week, one two days a week. Then there's the podcasting, which is about three or four days a week. And then there's some out-of-hours healthcare thing, which is, you know, not much at the moment, about half of that. But there's more days there than there are in a week. So if I want to continue on the podcasting and my writing, I've got to cut down on some of my other stuff. I've started going to see a therapist, you know. And the reason for that was um, I, I tell everybody else to go. So I should go. I've had therapy in the past before. My purpose of it is really to kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, my kids have grown up. My life is changing. I'm 61 this month in, in a couple of weeks. This is March, by the way, 2022. So I need to kind of work out what, what I'm for for the rest of my life. I often talk at work about most of my patients are facing life transitions, either they're young kids they're going to school, they're becoming teenagers and trying to assimilate with the group and become approved by the group. They're becoming adults, they're establishing relationships, which is always difficult. All of these are really difficult, really difficult. Then, you know, they're raising kids and then the kids, which is difficult. And then the kids leave home and give them, you know, one of my four, which is difficult. And then they they finish their working life, which is difficult. And then they've got to work out what they do. And then they face their death, which is difficult. You know, all of these things are really difficult. And I'm going through one. We all are pretty much all the time. So, so I thought I'd go and kind of work out what I'm for. And it's been very useful. She's a Jungian and you know that I'm really interested in Jung and the collective unconscious and things like that. So I found it quite, quite refreshing. Otherwise, everybody's okay. I've had a bit of a man week this week. So my, I have two daughters and I have Sheila, who's a lady, and I have my mother, who's a lady, and I have Shade the dog, who's a lady. And I work, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a nurse, right? So I work in healthcare, which is hugely female dominated. So most of the people I, I interact with, I would say 95% of my interactions are with women. And that's great. I love it. But I bumped into my friend Ben, who hadn't shaved. Now, Ben's a podcaster. He does, he does other things as well. Of course, he has to work. But he has his science fiction theatre and he does audio dramas and his background is really drama. So I'm doing this web novel very, very slowly, which was called My Personal Nightmare, which is now called um, We Two Are One. And it's coming along, but very slowly. I seem to have kind of a, 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 a uh, well, I don't know, a procrastination thing going on about it. I can always find something else to do. I think because it's hard. It's harder than the rest of the things I'm doing. This is relatively... I just talk, you know, I don't have to exert effort in the same way you do when you're writing. So I met Ben and then I had a coffee with Stephen Wharton, who's a storyteller. Who else did I say? Oh, and my partner Sheila's son, Liam, came round and we were watching the news and we had man, man conversations. Sheila said, oh, you're just talking about man. She used a 
an uncomplimentary word for the content of our conversation. You're talking about man stuff. But I quite enjoyed it. Varieties of Spice of Life. I was messing around with live streaming. And, and Anna, Annabelle Reads, she had said to me, listen, you can do all this with, with playlists. People can find all your stuff with playlists. But yeah, Anna, I know technically they can. But a lot of people really struggle with that. So I thought, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put some of my stories on the big long stream on YouTube. And that went down moderately well, actually. I like to experiment, as you know, I like to do different things all the time. I put my uh, science fiction horror story up, uh, Dark Worlds, and that was remarkably well received, given that when it sits in a playlist, it is not, it's it's not completely germane to the old time stories that I read here. It's different. So I'm now thinking about doing a different YouTube channel, which just for this kind of science fiction horror stuff, which is, it, which is different. It's not, there is an overlap, obviously, but it's, but I find a lot of my listeners here, my core listeners here, are, they're coming for the old time stuff. And the other experiment I did was finding an old time, British old time kind of mystery drama from the 40s and putting that up with my commentary on. And again, that was mixed. I think people were worried I would just, I would just do that and I wouldn't do this. But that isn't, was never the case. I, I will do those as additionals because they went down relatively well for a, a section of the audience. But I, I'm not planning on stopping doing this. Anyway, so there you are brought up to date. It's actually sunny today. There are some flowers out. Spring is around the corner. Otherwise, you know, there's very precious little in March 2022 to be happy about looking at the world. But then we had that, didn't we? I mean, I was saying, at the risk of being political, we had ISIS blowing things up. And then we had, in the UK, we had Brexit, which was very contentious. And then we had COVID for a couple of years, and now we got war. And me, I just want to... Uh, I want... I know you may call it cowardice, not facing up to all these challenges, but sometimes I just not... I don't want to have horrible things. I want to have nice things. And so this is my form of escapism, and hopefully you and I, we can sit here and listen to stories and think about stories, and we can save our angst about the world for another forum. But here we can just concentrate on, on, on enjoying ourselves, and I don't think there's anything wrong in that. Anyway, I'll speak to you soon, no doubt. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?